Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, where you can join conversation. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. We also uh, invite you to subscribe, of course, for new episodes. Get it right to you through iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Click there on the podcast tab. Find all the fine NR podcasts. Listen, share, enjoy, leave reviews. My tag team partner standing by. He would not miss this part two for the world. He's Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, actually, I'm a little bit disaffected with our partnership, Scott. I don't know. I'm just not feeling the magic. I, I feel uh, I know I've been pursuing a solo career. I've been doing other podcasts uh, while you were uh, sitting around biding your time. Uh, you know, you know what we can do. Maybe we can just dig up a bunch of outtakes for this one. Either that, or you can start working in your own studio with your own producer, and I'll work with my uh, studio and my producer, and then we'll kind of get together at the end. Listen, I'm going to be a pop star. I'm going to do Live Aid. <laughs> as long as the brand name continues, the Political Beats name, that's the most important thing. you got to protect the brand. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. This is, in fact, part two of our Rolling Stones episode. In case you didn't hear part one, well, what's wrong? Go get it uh, right now in those places I mentioned earlier. But we are about to start part two with a brand new guest. He is editor-in-chief of National Journal, nationaljournal.com. Find him on Twitter at DC DeFour, D-U-F-O-U-R. He's Jeff DeFour. Jeff, how are you? Gentlemen, I've been waiting in the hall. I've been waiting on your call. <laughs> uh, Jeff here to talk about the Stones with us as we pick up where we left off last time, the end of the Brian Jones era and the uh, beginning of uh, midway through the greatest winning streak in rock and roll history. We'll get back to the music in just a moment. First, we meet Jeff. Jeff, the floor is yours. Please tell us, first of all, who you are, where you've been, and uh, how you got into the world of politics. Sure. Um... Like a lot of people, I graduated with a political science degree and immediately started bartending with it. Uh, <laughs> about a year after that, I finally uh, got, uh, got motivated. I landed at National Journal the first time around, which at the time was really in the infancy of internet publishing. Uh, I then spent a few years at the Hill newspaper, another few years at the Washington Examiner in its first iteration. Uh, I wrote columns in both of those papers. Then I took about a six-year hiatus from politics, actually, when I wrote mostly about bars and restaurants in the D.C. area. So that was sort of a fun diversion. Uh, and when that ran its course, I wound up back at NJ. Uh, as luck would have it, I started about a month before the Iowa caucuses in 2016. So I find <laughs> myself uh, reinvigorated about politics and about covering politics. And, and, and here I still am. Uh, again, nationaljournal.com, nationaljournal.com. Jeff, you're with us for part two of the Rolling Stones. Now, uh, on part one, both Jeff Blair and I were able to tell uh, people about our love for the Rolling Stones and how we sure. got into them. We uh, give you an opportunity here before we start uh, getting into the music of this part two to tell us why you love the Rolling Stones, how you found out about them, and, and what, what exactly you do love about them. My Stones appreciation is probably a little bit less linear and came a little slower than most. Uh, and for that, I blame none other than my dear mother, who was a Stones hater from way back. Um, anytime a Stones song came on the radio, I can remember her kind of making a face and changing the FM dial. Uh, she almost perfectly encapsulated that Beatles-Stones divide of people who grew up in the <laughs> 60s. She never really cottoned to their brand of, of rock and roll sleaze. 
uh, she per- preferred the the the, the buttoned-up uh, early Beatles. So going back to high school, it was I was a huge classic rock fan, but it was pretty much hot rocks for me, and that was it in my collection. Um, and even that record, I think I, I didn't even own an original copy. I think I dubbed it from my uncle's vinyl copy. You know, when ah, you take I did a lot rack of stereo when yes. you would dub it onto the cassette. Um, and I think I'm not even sure I owned Sticky Fingers uh, until late college or just after college. And that also coincided with my first Stone show, which was 1997 at the then brand new FedEx Field. Like a lot of things at FedEx Field, it was not a good experience. Um, <laughs> it was cold. We were way up high. But they did play Sister Morphine on that tour. And I recognized it. I finally thought, okay, now I'm a fan. I'm one of the only people around me who knows what the hell this song is. Um, so anyway, I complete the collection not long thereafter. Fast forward almost 20 years, and I had been casually jamming with some other guys at a rehearsal space in Rockville every, uh, every week or so. One of these guys was in a Beatles band, still is, and asked us if we wanted to get an ad hoc band together to open for them. So a few of us, what are we going to open for the Beatles with? Well, we'll open with some Stone songs. So a few of us ended up doing about eight or nine Stones tunes. And out of that, about five years ago, a, a band was born, now known as the Dukes of Dartford. We named them after the train platform where Mick and Keith <laughs> met one another. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, the guy who plays uh, Keith to my Mick named Jim Neal, he works in Senate leadership. And our female vocalist, Karen Weiss, works for the Library of Congress. So we've got a lot of uh, political representation. In the, she's, in the is she the one, is she, she's the one who does the backing vocals on Gimme Shelter, I assume. Oh, yes. Like, like Let It Loose. All yeah. right. Yeah. You bet. Awesome. Um, so you guys covered a lot of this in part one and just good context. But on a 10,000 you know, foot level, the Stones are one of those few bands where rock and roll is not the same if you erase them from existence you could take a band even on the level of the who i think and if you remove them from rock history i'm unclear how much the direction of rock and roll changes you can't say that about the stones it's you know beatles stones led zeppelin Jimi hendrix rock and roll is not rock and roll without these guys it's it's just not the same and you also have to note that 20 for a 20 year period starting in the last episode you guys covered a lot of from 1963 to 1983 i don't think any band has ever put out very good to great material over two decades not springsteen not u2 not any other legacy band including the beatles and and led zeppelin um they released an album almost every year from 1964 to 1974, with 1970 being the, the, the skipped year out of Altamont. Uh, I don't know. Can you name another band like that? I can't. Well, I mean, I think Dylan was still putting out music on a regular basis, but yeah, well, we did our Dylan episodes, and right. there's some <laughs> variable quality up there in the 80s. I think yep. we can all agree. Right. Yep. But that's basically it, if, if, especially if you're going from 63 to 83. That's Dylan and the Stones, and you're completely correct about this. I, they are <clears> – <throat> the funny thing is we spent you know, you know, three hours 
talking about the first decade of the Stones' career, we're going to have to compress the last 50 of their, <laughs> their career to the problem. present date. The Stones are touring right now, coming to a theater near you. Or actually, it's not a theater. It's, it's a stadium. mega stadium yeah. near you. Um, and they're still doing it, and they're still bringing it like a mother live. They still have it. They still have the energy. They still have the excitement. Of course, you know, it, it, it's probably harder to appreciate if you're sitting in the back row of Soldier Field, uh, as Scott was. <laughs> Six rows from the very back. It's a different kind of experience back there. <laughs> right, you have to watch the screens because there's just these little ants marching around on the stage who <laughs> are the guys who are playing you the know, song. Mick's they, not very big to begin with, and when you're that far away, he looks even smaller. <laughs> as I said, he's, he's just a little soldier ant, just like furiously working his butt off, even after like heart surgery. Uh, but they're still doing it today. And I think maybe the argument I'm going to make is that we all know the early part of this this show, we're going to talk about, uh, as, I say, as Scott says, we're in the middle of one of the bigger winning streaks in, in uh, popular music history. Um, and then there were some dips. But I would argue that they never, except for that weird 80s era, which is kind of almost comical, uh, never went into true decline. And then they, when they came back, they came back well. Uh, there are flaws, and they're never going to be the stones of Beggar's Banquet or Lay It Bleed. Um, but they still are making good music, and they're still absolutely killing it live on the road. And uh, maybe they're careerists, maybe they're professionals, but you know, by God, aren't we grateful? for you know an old reliable car that we know that every day when we go out into the garage <laughs> and we turn on the ignition it's going to start this band will still start you up starts you up even to this day and uh, i guess you know since i've been talking about how good they still are as a live band this is where we begin we began with the first sort of epic world historical legendary stones tour the ones uh, i talked in our pre-show notes about how much i make fun of people like grail marcus who like to mythologize things like this but this is the rolling stones in 1969 let it bleed which we, of course, covered in our last show, had not actually come out yet. It was in the can, but it hadn't come out yet. Uh, Stones finally embark upon their first major American concert tour since 1966. This results in uh, a lot of things, including the occasional stray murder and the beating of Marty Balin of Jefferson Airplane by the Hells Angels at Altamont. Um, 
you know, I, I've never much liked Jefferson Airplane, but Marty didn't deserve it. <laughs> um, this, of course, though, is documented on the legendary, and I'm going to come right out here and say it, incredibly overrated live album called Get Your Yaya's Out. The Rolling Stones in concert, 1969. Charlie Watts jumping up in the air with a guitar, even though he didn't play guitar. Um, in, in, on the cover, uh, it's a very famous album. It's widely considered one of the greatest live albums ever released. I don't agree, and I wonder if you guys feel the same way or if you, you think this is truly one of you know the great live documents of the rock era. It would not be in my top 10 live albums of all time. Um, it might not even be in my top 20. That said, I don't, I don't mind it. I think it's a lot better than a lot of the other live albums they would put out. I'm talking about uh, Flashpoint and Still Life, which are truly execrable live albums. <laughs> Why those ever were released, I have no idea. Maybe we'll get to that later. Um, but I think this is a decent live document. Um, I think the high point for me, and I really was hoping to avoid talking about this song in the era of Jeffrey Epstein, um, but Stray Cat Blues, uh, the, the, reimagining, uh, the reimagined slowed down version, I really like. It's, to me, it's the exact same chord progression and tempo as Led Zeppelin's Your Time Is Gonna, uh, Your Time Is But it's really good, just sort of a druggy jam. Uh, the Midnight Rambler is really good. Uh, and the Chuck Berry covers, uh, Carol and Little Queenie, uh, it's something they would keep going back to. And, and it's really never left their set, the Chuck Berry uh, gut check. Yeah, and for I, yeah, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know I don't spend a ton of time with live releases generally. I've heard... All these stones, when I've heard Yaya's, it's, it's, it's okay. What I spend a lot more time on is I, I worked with a guy who had a ton of stones uh, bootleg live albums, and I, I spend far more time with those. Uh, Let Your Leeds Lungs Out from 71, uh, Welcome to New York from 72, uh, Rocks Off from 73. Um, that's the live stuff, the live stone stuff that I spend the vast majority of my time with. Um, so I, I think Yaya's is okay. I've seen a lot of the Stones uh, concert films, too, and those are of quite variable quality as well. The one that, that they did after uh, Tattoo You um, from Philly um, is not very good at all, and I can't remember what, what it's called. Uh, oh, Let's Spend the Night Together. Uh, that, that live concert is very, very poor. Directed by famous 70s film director Hal Ashby, of all people. Yeah. Uh, just random factoid. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you can get your hands, I, I mean, get your yayas out is okay. I, I, those bootlegs that I mentioned, the, the ones that I have, and, and they're out there, they're floating. You can find them. There's YouTube clips, I'm sure, of most of those uh, concerts, I think are, are better documents of what they were as a live band back during that time. 
I mean, okay, the thing about Yaya's is that I've never liked the mix, and, and this is like the Stones trying to be a serious band. You know, gone are the days of Beatlemania where people are shrieking and screaming and you can't hear the, the, the music being played. They did that. There's you know, that terrible album that we didn't even discuss on our prior episode called uh, Got Live If You Want It, which is just like, you know, like the aviary din, the aircraft noise of girls going, ah, you know, the whole time. And it's just awful. Uh, this is the era, uh, late 60s, it's you know, the hippie, you know, protest era. People are sitting down and respectfully listening and then dancing and getting, you know, uh, you know, or getting up and moving around. Uh, and they were stiff, though. That's the thing you could just tell that they they'd been a little bit out of practice because they hadn't been doing it for too many years and of course that the other issue is they were integrating a new member into the band and of course this is where you have to talk about a guy named mick taylor we mentioned him briefly in our last show but he didn't really make much of an impression on the actual recorded music of let it bleed he plays a little bit on honky tonk women the single that came out around that time he's like on one or two songs on the album it's on yaya's though where you really first hear him as a guitarist uh and he's the saving grace of this record and he is of course going to be one of the featured performers on everything they're going to do for the next several years this guy came out of john miles blues blues breakers uh which was sort of like the finishing school for blues guitarists you know they graduated eric clapton and then peter green and then mick taylor all in sequence went on to join all these famous bands um and taylor joins the stones and he fits in really well and when they have to reconfigure these songs for live performance some songs like you know sympathy for the devil which you know in its studio version is just like you know you know it's it's, it's congas and mongos and it's you know weird ghostly <laughs> yow yow like you know yelps in the background you can't play that in madison square garden and hit the back row and have any effect so what are they gonna do they're gonna you know turn it into a guitar rocker and it's mick taylor who helps them bring it off Love in Vain into an amazing live number. It's Mick Taylor who does an amazing job with Midnight Rambler. Uh, Taylor is the guy who is brings a wonderful touch. Some people criticize him as being like overly busy, fussy. Oh, he plays too many notes when you know half as much would do. I just wonder before we go on to Sticky Fingers, which is the first album to fully feature him. Although even there, Sticky Fingers is an album with such a long genesis that some yeah. songs were recorded before he even joined. Um, what do you guys think about Taylor as a player? Oh, I'm thrilled to do this now. Um, before we get into his his albums, Mick Taylor may actually be my favorite lead guitar player in ever. But he's certainly in the conversation. Um, because he's so tasteful. I don't think he's ever playing too many notes. Sometimes mm -hmm. he, he, I even think he's too restrained. Um, 
his box of tricks, I would say, is somewhat limited. But man, oh man, does he make great use of those tricks. Um, I look at him as almost the inverse image of Jimmy Page. Page had all kinds of innovative ideas about how to play the electric <laughs> guitar and what to do with it. Yeah. But he could really be sloppy live. Um, contrast to that, uh, contrast that to Taylor's playing on, on, on some of the live recordings during, during this tour, uh, the famous Brussels show, the famous Dallas show, um, the slide work on Brown Sugar and All Down the Line. Uh, the the lyricism on Love and Bane, you can't always get what you want. I mean, his note selection is right on point. He's as tasteful and melodic as you can possibly be. Um, he wasn't very demonstrative or showy. I remember, I think in his book, Keith comments about how he was always just sort of gazing down at his at his guitar neck. Uh, but that was fine because you he had all the, the original shoegazer around him. <laughs> yeah, he was the original shoegazer. But you've got Keith and Mick jumping around all around him. He doesn't need to be that demonstrative. I, I, I just adore Mick Taylor's playing. And uh, uh, again, he's in the handful of my favorite, you know, lead guitarists of all time, without a doubt. You know, reading back what, what Keith would say about him in later years, he kind of alternates between saying the, you know, he was too busy and, and play, didn't play exactly the way I wanted him to, to then at other times saying he really was wonderful and a great addition to the band. And let's not forget, as we're going to talk about very soon, Mick Taylor also uh, very, very, very likely uh, co-wrote a bunch of things he did not get any credit for. Um, on the actual songwriting credits. And so he brought that aspect to the band, too. When Keith was down and out and in, incapable of contributing, Mick had to, uh, to bounce ideas off of someone, and that someone happened to be Mick Taylor. And he added a lot of depth and a lot of beauty to those songs. Uh, I mean, we'll get to this, but I mean, Time Waits for No One is just brilliant, and that's virtually all Mick Taylor. Uh, right away on Sticky Fingers, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, one of my favorite Stones songs. That song doesn't exist without Mick Taylor. It's not happening uh, w without Mick's involvement in the band. And so are th there are a lot of places over these next four or five years where you have songs that quite literally would not have existed uh, in that form without Mick Taylor being in the band. I, I think, uh, I, I agree with Jeff. I, I listen to, 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 to Mick Taylor, I, I, I very rarely, rarely, whether it's on the album or in a live setting, 
rarely think that he's playing too much, that he's too busy. Um, I, I think he's he's just he's technically gifted, quite clearly. Um, but I, I think he generally plays within the song and is very tasteful with his his licks and additions and even his solos. His solos aren't, you know, over the top, uh, generally, you know, red hot sort of solos. They, they, they fit the song. They're very lyrical in nature. And uh, he is just a magnificent guitar player. So this brings us, of course, to the first studio album of the era that we're going to cover. And again, the sort of the third part of the the classic tetralogy of as, as what we've already referred to as the great winning streak of the Stones career. We had Beggar's Banquet. We had Let It Bleed. Then they took time. <clears throat> they broke up with their label. They went on tour. They became English tax exiles. They went on tour again. They did a little more recording. And finally, out comes an album called Sticky Fingers, which everybody loves, except me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only person on the planet who thinks this is the big down swerve in that era, um, I, which is not to say that there aren't at least half of the songs on this record that I consider to be great triumphs. And, and one of them will make my top five, maybe two at the end of the show as the best things the Rolling Stones ever did. But I've always found this album to have a lack of a flow and I've never, and I guess probably the number one reason why I don't like it as much as everyone else is that the two biggest singles on it are the ones that I like the least. I have never liked wild horses. I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I this is a song that could be good in other people's hands. I would have loved to hear the faces do wild horses. The faces could have done a fantastic cover of wild horses with good old Ronnie Wood doing a fantastic guitar interpretation of it. never like brown sugar as long as i'm alive brown sugar what can you say about brown sugar brown sugar surely at least is the greatest ode to the joys of slave rape that has ever been written it has not aged well it has not aged well <laughs> but the thing is is that even at the time before the woke era happened i was eight years old or whatever it was when i first heard the song and i finally decoded the lyrics i was like man that sucks. <laughs> and you know, it's not even the lyrics that even get you. Know, listen, like Stray Cat Blues, yeah. we talked about on our last episode. That's 
equal. I mean, in fact, Harry, Harry Kachatrian on our last episode pointed out, it's like, well, it's a, it's an even coin flip between this and Stray Cat, which is more offensive lyrically because, you know, Stray Cat Blues is Mick Jagger having sex with like, you know, 14 year old groupies. And, but Stray Cat gets by because the music is so great. And I find Brown Sugar, although it is a crowd pleaser. And yes, yes, that's a very compulsive riff. I find it to be sort of a retread and a repeat of greater triumphs earlier in the career. It's like half live with me. It's half, um, you know, uh, you know, street fighting man. It, it sounds like earlier triumphs that have been done again. And it feels a little bit too kind of calculated. Again, I am out on a rock in the middle of the ocean <laughs> as the guy who says he doesn't like sticky fingers because he doesn't like brown sugar and wild horses. You guys, please defend them and save the honor of political beats by pointing out that these are actually good songs. They are good songs. Um, although I w what I will agree with you on is I think that the album does suffer in part due to its sequencing and its flow. I, I can't think of a more poorly sequenced Stones album, at least popular Stones album, uh, than, than Sticky Fingers. That said, uh, I, I think the songs here are generally up and down, very solid to great. Um, can't You Hear Me Knocking, which I mentioned just a minute ago uh, with Mick Taylor, um, is just one of my all-time favorite Stones songs. It is seven minutes plus. It is um, it, it, that opening riff with uh, Bill Wyman's thumping bass and Charlie just snapping his snare drum in. Those first five, six seconds are delicious. I love it. Um, it has a very kind of Latin Carlos Santana kind of vibe to it. The first, what, two and a half or so is, is the, is the song structured. And then there was, uh, you know, space love for, for a little bit instrumental break with Mick, Taylor and, and Bobby Keys on, on saxophone. And then all of a sudden they started listening to their Santana album. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's the Rolling Stones as jam band. And it's great. It's fantastic. Four minutes, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be. They were supposed to shut things down. And uh, Mick Taylor just simply wouldn't stop playing. There's a section where Keys thinks the song is going to end. You can hear the saxophone drop out. Mick keeps going. And if I listen closely enough, I think I hear someone in the background saying, keep playing, something, something like that. And they do. And uh, Mick continues soloing. Bobby Keys jumps back in after about 10, 15 seconds. And you have still another two minutes or so of this magnificent uh, back and forth between Mick Taylor and, and Bobby Keys on the sax. And it's just, it's just amazingly good the way those, those two instruments are weaving all around. You know, back to the, the lyrical part at the beginning, 
you know, can't you hear me knock it and, and, then, and then Charlie pop it in with pop pop uh, on the snare. I love the during the help me baby ain't no stranger. You hear that organ just creeping in underneath everything. Uh, can't you hear me knock it is one of my favorite, favorite Stone songs. And again, speaking of Mick Taylor, praise him again for track two on the album, which is Sway. This is one that Keith has absolutely nothing to do with um he's not involved it's it's essentially a, <laughs> he was strung out on heroin in his bedroom yeah. and then it was just mick and and mick taylor uh playing this it, it's mick jagger playing the guitars is the, the rhythm yep. guitar on that yep mick's got the rhythm and of course uh, mick taylor has the has the has the lead and you know lyrically here <laughs> you know with with keith out of of commission it's a little window as to what I think Mick is seeing happening all around him. People struggling with drugs, uh, people struggling with relationships. Uh, and at some point, it's, it's you know, Mick's kind of saying here, um, well, th- this is the deal, right? If, if you're going to go down that path, because Mick um, wasn't afraid to dabble uh, and maybe a little more than that, but, but never was a, a junkie, right? The way that these other guys were in the band, many of the other guys were in the band and Swaying away is Mick saying, you know, it's the deal you you sign. You know, you're going to start down this path. What else would you expect than problems? It's that demon life that's got Got you in its sway. Yep. And strings here by Paul Buckmaster, which are fabulous. Uh, Sway is just a great, great. And, and of course, the, the Taylor solos, that second solo is just stunningly good toward the end of the song. One day I woke. fantastic i'll also defend wild horses from from jeff's uh, uh beat down I, I think wild horses is a very good song i don't know if that's because i am also a a, a massive graham parsons fan um and of course this is one of the most graham parsons influenced tracks i think that keith yeah ever put together sure. um the parsons version with the flying burrito brothers even came out before the stones version on sticky fingers i think the flying burrito brothers had their version out in 1970 um, but this is just a really, really nice song inspired in part by Graham Parsons. The guys met in 68 down in South Africa when the birds were on tour down there. And, and Parsons really taught, you know, as much as Mick and Keith knew the blues uh, like the back of their hand, and they did, uh, you know, Graham taught them about country. Uh, and, and you hear that influence seeping in on a number of tracks over the next decade or so, and even past then, even you know the more the more current albums like Voodoo Lounge have these country tinged uh, songs on them. And I think that has a lot to do with what, what Graham gave them in their conversations. Uh, Wild Horses, tack piano played by Jim Dickinson, uh, Charlie tasteful as always, kind of powers in and then dr- and then drops out in at the right times to add a sense of drama to the song. Uh, I, I really love Wild Horses. Those are the three I wanted to focus on. I'll throw it over to Jeff, and I, I think, I would imagine Jeff's going to also defend the honor of Sticky Fingers. Uh, yeah, you and I are largely going to be simpatico here. Um, 
I agree with you about the running order. Um, it, on subsequent albums, notably, I think, Tattoo You, they do this thing where the first side sounds like the party and the second yeah. side sounds like the hangover or the come down. Um, I wish they did a little bit more of that here. Maybe Wild Horses and Sway on the second side and you move uh, Bitch up to side A. Because uh, I think that last gasp of the album with I Got the Blues, mm-hmm. the, the Mrs. Uh, which is, again, with the Billy Preston organ solo coming in, it's it's just lovely. Um, Sister Morphine and Moonlight Mile, it's just perfect. It's uh, it To me, it evokes the... It's what you're listening to at 3 a.m. when everybody else has left the party. You know, it's like just you and the pizza delivery guy hanging out and you're debating whether you're going to clean all this stuff up now or you're going to wait till the morning after you wake up. <laughs> uh, that's what that's what that that, that evokes. Um, the party's over. Everybody's left. Um, I think this is I think Let It Bleed is my is is the best Stones album objectively to the extent that we can even be objective about these things. But Sticky Fingers is probably my favorite. Um, it's not quite as dark as Let It Bleed. The sound's a little bit more bigger, a little bigger and more expansive. Um, and I don't want to give the band too much credit for, for forethought or big ideas because they're not really a big ideas band. <laughs> you know, no, to contrast it to your, uh, your Beach Boys episode, the Stones never sat around thinking, okay, let's write a teenage symphony to God. <laughs> it was never that. Um, but I think in the same way that Let It Bleed kind of spoke to the death of 60s idealism, now you've got Sticky Fingers, which to me sounds like what you get when that idealism is replaced by sheer decadence. Mm. You know, We know we're not going to save the world anymore, but we sure do like these drugs and this sex, so let's keep that. <laughs> uh, and in terms of specific songs Scott you've already said all that there is to be said I think about Can't You Hear Me Knock and it's my favorite song to listen to it's my favorite song to play it's even before Martin Scorsese got a hold of it um, by the way Jeff is, is it just me or does Martin Scorsese seem to ruin all of our favorite musical memories by putting them into his films Yes. I, I, I'm so well, sick. I'm, I I'm so sick of it. Like, like, oh, here's a Boston Mafia film. Oh, no, no, <laughs> Monkey Man's on the background. What does that have to do with the Boston Mafia? Right. And now I all do, of a sudden, people know it. Damn. I do like the opening sequence of Blow with "Can't You Hear Me Knocking" when they're tracing the production process of the cocaine. Yeah, that actually that, that kind it, it kind of works. It does. Yeah, I would say uh, we. I already mentioned Billy Preston. Uh, you got to move the Mississippi Fred McDowell tune. They do a great job with that. And then um, we haven't said enough. I, I don't think about bitch. And a lot of people don't realize that's not Mick Taylor playing the solo. That's Keith Richards doing all Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to understand why people are, are confused by this. If it sounds like Chuck Berry, it's <laughs> it's Keith. It, it always has been. It always will be.
I mean, Bitch is, of course, great, and it should have been the lead single from the album instead yes. of Brown Sugar. I, yes. I, I think it's, I think it's the, if you're talking about the hit making tracks, that's the one. I'm gonna, uh, and it's said, mildly offensive. Uh, well, but you know what? The thing is, he's not he's calling not, right, right, any right. woman a bitch. No. He's just right. saying that love is a bitch. Right. And, you know, I always misheard that lyric. You know, you've got to fix it, Charlie. You've got to. I always thought he was telling Charlie Watts to do the mixing engineering duties on the album. <laughs> you've, you've got to fix it. You've got to mix it, Charlie. You know, uh, and, and Charlie's sitting here. He's like, listen, I have to keep time for you, sons of guns. <laughs> now you're giving me this job. Uh, but, yeah, bitches, of course, just an epic track. Um, the After I have criticized this record for so long, I, I will say this, that it ends with two of the greatest things that the Rolling Stones ever recorded, and they couldn't be more different from one another. The first one of them, of course, is Dead Flowers. God, I love Dead Flowers. I love Dead Flowers. I even survived through a moment where I was in high school driving a girl home from a date uh, you know, and I was trying to like impress her and be like smooth and romantic and dead flowers was playing. And she's like, can you turn this awful country music off? Oh, and I no. was just like, I got wounded, man. I was just like, <laughs> oh, damn. And you know, I, it didn't wow. work out. It was never meant to be clearly, but there's just something so wonderful. You know, after the stones had done these variously like goofy and self parodic takes on country music with like high and dry from aftermath and dear doctor on beggars banquet. Then you have dead flowers. It's this, this gloriously assured tribute to the Bakersfield sound. It's Buck Owens, it's Merle Haggard. Um, and then of course it then interfaces with, with Keith Richards hanging out with Graham Parsons. And then you get this perfect balance in the lyrics between silliness and seriousness, you know, like uh, there's that line where, you know, you can send me dead flowers every morning. Say it with dead flowers, which is the, the floral. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, FTD. FTD, wasn't it? FTD. Yeah. Say it with flowers. Say it with dead flowers. And then Jagger comes back and says, you know, and I won't forget to put roses on your grave. Oh, it's so funny. But of course, I played that song at my wedding. <laughs> yeah, the, the, but the thinly disguised heartbreak in there is real. Yeah. You know, you, you get that sense that he's snarking to Keith from crying, and then t- Taylor. I don't even know if is it Mick or is it Keith. There's no, there's a dispute on this. No one's entirely sure. He played it live, but on the studio, like this, this guitar line that almost sounds like it's a pedal steel. Uh, it's so fluid, and and you know, just it's a pastiche that's so flawless that it's the only country song that the Stones ever did wrote themselves that would then be covered by other rebel country greats. I don't know if you guys have ever heard Towns Van Zandt's version mm-hmm. of it or Steve Earle's version of it. Also great.
dead flower country. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. <sighs> yeah. Uh, but Alejandro Escovedo's version of Sway. Yeah. You ever yes. Heard that? yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. My goodness. That's very good. So Dead Flowers, though, fantastic song. But then this song, this album, which I've panned in large part, ends with um, it's this or it's You Can't Always Get What You Want uh, as the greatest song of the Rolling Stones career. 55 years in the business. It's called Moonlight Mile, and it's a Jagger Richards composition in name only. Richards was nowhere to be found. This is Mick Taylor and Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger's playing the acoustic guitar. Mick Taylor's doing the electric fills. Uh, Richards was nowhere to be found. Then, you know, you have this this beautiful sound. And, and, and you talked about how the Stones weren't going into, like, big movements. They weren't writing teenage symphonies to God. But I really do think that that lyric is, is, is Mick's greatest achievement. It's this hauntedly desolate, travelogue of the yawning moonlit expanses of back roads america uh, you know there's you talk about like, when the wind blows and the rain is cold with a head full of snow and I, that may be a cocaine reference but it doesn't sound like it it just sounds like you know like it's it's cold and it's rainy you know you talk about like you know burning your clothes for for fire for warmth and how i'm sleeping under strange strange skies it 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 all feeds ineluctably back into that sense of of a person who becomes lost in the unforgiving vastness of an unknown and an unknowable country which is the united states and Jagger just builds up to that that big triumph where at the end he's you know he's letting go he's letting go and then it dies away and then Mick Taylor just plays that little beautiful guitar solo that duels with Paul Buckmaster's strings and then the piano it just echoes like ripples upon the water and it ends an album of I think uneven quality but it ends it on their greatest conclusion of their history. This is better than Salt of the Earth. As I said, this might even be better than You Can't Always Get What You Want. This, to me, even though it's so uncharacteristic for the Rolling Stones, in a weird way could be their signature song. way to close uh, Sticky Fingers and it also sort of leads us to the next I don't want to say era because you're still in the same area but but uh, tax exiles I mean I don't know how deep we want to go into the story here but but uh, essentially due to uh, uh, contracts they signed with Alan Klein 
he failed to pay income tax for like four or five years on their income and of course they don't have that money anyway and uh they, they oh it's to- not even that he failed to pay the income it's that he also owned all the right. royalties and the rights because of the, the 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 swindle contract that they signed and so they were never going to be able to dig their way right. out of that hole not if they stayed where they were because uh what 93 percent tax rate on <laughs> the yeah the, the income on the upper level in uh, in england so they they uh, they couldn't stay there anymore. They play what t- ten uh, ten nights uh, farewell little tour in England before heading out and going to France. Uh, so they're English expats playing American music for the most part and living in France uh, and and working at Keith's mansion. Uh, and that's where Exile on Main Street comes in. Uh, this is um, this is a classic album. Clearly, uh, what I think largely if not completely lives up to its billing although it was not well reviewed at the time of release Uh, critics would come around to it uh, relatively quickly but it was not received with open arms when it was released the sprawling what 18 track uh four you know double lp exile on main street hey do you want me to give you the selected critical notices for uh, exile on main street from night okay i'm gonna i'm gonna quote from uh uh, beloved uh, rock critic lester bangs writing in cream in 1972 quote this is at once the worst studio album the rolling stones have ever made and the most maddeningly inconsistent and strangely depressing release of their career uh uh, lenny k in rolling stone magazine wrote this great stones album of their mature tour period it's yet to come this is not it uh and here here's another one um exile is not one of my favorite albums generally i think it sounds lousy of course i'm ultimately responsible for it but it's really not good and there's no concerted effort or intention to it and that last quote that's from mick jagger and that's in 2003 I think it's better than that. I'll go on the limb and say that. Uh, Exile is... Uh, it's not all in France. There were a handful, six, seven songs they brought with them that were some years old. Tumbling Dice is older. Uh, Sweet Virginia's older. Alden Line is, is an older so- uh, tune. But once they get there, uh, uh, it's a mess. Uh, I mean, it's a mess. There are so much drugs happening. And not just with Keith, but with guys like Bobby Keys uh, and, and, and the producer and engineers, too. Andy Johns and others are just falling down this well of drugs and unable to claw their way out. You have Mick and Keith essentially writing individually, sending messages back and forth, sometimes through their lyrics. Uh, Mick is married to Bianca at this point, and uh, Anita and Keith really don't like Bianca. And that, that really strains that relationship between Mick and Keith and their ability to write songs together. And yet... 
in all of this, you come out at the very end, and uh, Jeff will make this point because I know he, he wrote about this, where this was not, you know, this was not planned. I didn't want to go and, and kind of have this touchstone album that, that grabs from every single piece of, of American music from gospel to soul to blues to country. It just kind of happened that way, and uh, it's it's a masterpiece. And uh, I'll have Jeff DeFore uh, lead us off here with his thoughts on Exile. Yeah, I mean, uh, hanging out in the basement of a French mansion for months on end doing hard drugs is not really how I would choose to live my life, but damned <laughs> if it didn't work for them. It's hard to, it's hard to argue with the results. Um, let's, let's start it this way. With, with every double album... We, I think we always like to play the game of what you would leave off of it to get to a single album. And it's probably harder for on this album than any other. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder than the White Album, for instance. The White Album's pretty easy to get down to a single album. Um, and and that's, that speaks to how good it is. And, and maybe it's the best double album for that reason. You, can, you might start with I Just Want to See His Face, which is, I think, the only real throwaway track here. It's like fitter happier on okay computer the one that you automatically (laughs) just skip over wrong very wrong but anyways continue you you actually listen to fitter happier no i i love i i think i just want to see his face is like oh okay okay. that was nearly made more position than you listen to fitter happier okay yeah no no i'm but you know casino boogie is the one you cast out of exile but anyways continue boogie i mean maybe the robert johnson cover stop breaking down just because it's a cover maybe let it loose or soul survivor or oh, step no. down from the others but but from there it gets really really hard i mean i know turd on the run isn't really considered a classic but i defy you to leave that on the cutting room floor uh casino boogie I, nobody does anybody do these dive bar blues songs quite as well it's almost like you can you can smell the old overhaul as you're listening to the song <laughs> um what else uh rocks off which is one of the great album openers i think uh, all charlie watts the junky poetry that they bring to it the sunshine bores the daylights out of me i mean how good is that This joint has this tempo that is uh, short of hardcore punk. It's about as fast as you'll ever hear a rock song. You think the whole thing's going to go off the rails at any moment. And it's probably got their, their greatest collection of country tinge songs. Tumbling Dice, Sweet Virginia, and Torn and Frayed. It's, I don't think they ever did anything better than that in the country vein. Maybe Dead Flowers. 
Okay, we're going to have to do a little ping pong here because we're going to go back and forth. This is, of course, uh, an album that we could have recorded the entire podcast about. It has 18 songs on it. I don't – and by the way, 18 songs, 66 minutes. Mm -hmm. God, I love that. I'm always a fan of the brevity of albums when artists recognize that they can edit themselves, that they don't have to go on for too long. This is two records, and yet it still feels like it's a, you know, over in a flash. Uh, yeah, Casino Boogie, maybe the one song that I might remove. I don't even think it's bad. It just feels inessential. It feels like one of those songs on the B-side of It's Only Rock and Roll, where you're like, eh, I don't really remember too much about that. Ironically enough, though, it's better than any of those songs on It's Only Rock and Roll, which you know, just tells you kind of what a, a nader they were at at that point. But uh as Scott pointed out, and, and I've written about this, the thing is that you need to understand the story of Exile is that it was not supposed to be this way. Everyone talks about this album. There are myths, myths that have arisen around this album uh, that are, in fact, so you know, you know, thickly formed and so fully sort of co you know coalesced that you, God help you if you would try to you know, tear them down. But I will do that. I will be that man. Uh, the myth, of course, is that it's Keith Richards' album. That this is you know Keith at his greatest, strung out on, you know, he's he's like a some sort of weedily laboring junkie Hercules rerouting <laughs> a river of smack into southern France to feed his habits and the habits of all the hangers on and the the weird people who are hanging around Villanelle Cote and uh, you know you know, coming up with these great songs and these riffs like you know in the middle of the night wakes up uh at 3 a.m and says i got to record this riff i heard in my dreams we're going to put it on the ending of rocks off um, um and then you know randomly he shows up sober one day at three o'clock in the afternoon which is a completely normal human time for real people <laughs> and then he's like i have a song and of course everyone else is gone because they've just become accustomed to his junkie hours which is to say we're going to record from midnight onwards until 6 a.m and the only people left are like the producer the the engineer and the horn players and what do they do in 25 minutes they record happy <laughs> happy which is the signature keith richards song of all time happy uh where i have to observe that keith richards sings incredibly well for a guy who sounds like he is constantly falling <laughs> off of a cliff <laughs> that song and it just you cannot get up and not want to dance when you don't hear like the opening riff to happy never kept dollar past sunset always burned a hole in my pants that's the myth of exile on main street but the reality in my opinion of this is this really mick jagger's album mick jagger saved this from being a disaster mick jagger after keith a got completely 
over addicted to heroin to the point where he's no longer a functional human being or a collaborator, but also where they had to literally flee France because the authorities <laughs> were closing in on them as if they were a narco terrorist regime suddenly setting up camp in nice they had to leave because there were so many drugs so many drug users and dealers hanging around that studio that it was becoming a public hazard he got banned from the country for four years have, have they you, had they, it caused touring problems for them in the future have you read That's the robert the, uh, have you read the robert greenfield books from, from uh, no I ha- i'm not sure I, no i don't believe so what, what what is this he was he was there for exile recording and, and the tours right around there and so uh first-hand accounts and of course interviews as well and i have two of them one is uh, oh no i can't remember them exile there's one specifically on the recording of exile and one on the tour but my point is there are the stories in there, many, many stories. At times, it reads just like a running, you know, a running diary of of drug events, and it's, um, you know, it, it's kind of there's a you know a myth to it, there's a mythology to it, and um, then what Greenfield's books make very clear is it it wasn't. It was like sad and it was sorted, depressing yeah, and ugly really and cool brutal. It. it was yeah, it was, there's nothing cool about this this era at all, except for the music. But the way they were living their personal lives um, and, and the amount of drugs that were running in and out of the, uh, out of that French mansion and the trouble they were in and the depths they would go to to find drugs when when they needed a fix and all. It, it's just ugly. It's ugly stuff. And the thing is, it's going to eventually show up on the music, as we'll find out in their next few albums. But for here, for this point, it worked. And the reason it worked, in, and I got to say, nobody gives Mick enough credit for this. Mick himself doesn't give himself enough credit for this. But what happened is that they took the album to Los Angeles. You know, one of the very, you know, the USA was still uh, allowable as a place for them to like live <laughs> at least temporarily. <laughs> yeah. they, hadn't, they hadn't been kicked out of there with their traveling medicine show yet and so he went to uh los angeles it started sort of rescuing the the tracks that had been given to him and then he started hanging out with a guy named billy preston who we know if you uh, listen to our beatles episode from the latter part of that great soul singer who would become a part of the stones entourage and their their performing ensemble for many years to come um Billy took him to Sunday church. So when I would see, uh, you know, the gospel sounds, Aretha Franklin would perform occasionally. They would hear, you know, they would feel the spirit of the Lord moving within them. Mick was moved by it. And this is something that he had never heard in a Rolling Stone song up until this point. And then Jagger actually said, okay, you know what? We can do this. And so what happens? You get let it loose. Give, give it a complete gospel makeover. Sweet Virginia comes out of the vaults and then they give it that, that, communal choral sing-along with that great you know you know come on sweet virginia you gotta scrape the shit off your shoes that's such a great great chorus i put that Uh, put that in the same category as when we had uh did the band episode and we talked about the weight and how it just sounds like they are around in a circle at a campfire knowing the parts doing the thing that's exactly how this version of sweet virginia sounds
that's so real and yet it's not and that's the thing gotta give credit to the to, to mick and to 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 jimmy miller for getting that sound to sound authentic people always complain that this is a badly produced album i i, I won't have any truck with that i think it's an incredibly produced album but i think you know you can talk about every song on exile on main street but the one that to me has always meant the most is shine a light uh which again hugely influenced by you know that gospel blast that mick got from hanging out in los angeles this is an older song it's something that mick had written it back in 1969 and it was a tribute to brian jones something that's always been he's always talked around never quite openly admitted but it, it's clearly the case and uh you know we didn't actually even note this that you know after the stones made jones quit the band uh, he died only a few months afterwards in, in a swimming pool you know, nominally drowning there are all sorts of weird conspiracy theories but it, it almost felt like it was inevitable he was on a collision course for disaster and then they and, played you know, Park, what two three days later two three days later and you see the outtakes where they're in the like the dressing room and mick is like you know basically on the verge of tears he's like yeah i don't even know how am i supposed to do this um so he wrote shine a light and the song in its exile on main street version is basically a miracle because you know when you talk about the rolling stones you don't usually talk about emotional sincerity mm -hmm. and gospel as a vernacular rapai relies upon emotional sincerity to do like at least half of what it's argumentative work because there's relative harmonic and chordal orthodoxy to the musical structures and so like you know you, you know you've got to really kind of you know, sing with power and if you're going to get the point across but here here on this song um you feel the spirit uh, every vocal inflection feels real it feels practiced it's not faked it's not affected it's not auto it's it's automatic you know billy preston's on the piano there and uh it's not flashy it's just you know roots and it plants the band firmly in the earth as even as they they, they push skywards with that incredible mick taylor solo and Listen, Brian Jones had a really troubled relationship with the Rolling Stones, obviously. You know, they've talked about it many times. They've been very open about it. He was not a nice guy. He had real issues. But Mick wrote him a send-off worthy of his legacy when he, he has that lyric. You know, he says, you know, the angels beating their wings in times, smiles on their faces and tears right in their eyes. I thought I heard one sigh for you. Come on up now. Come on up now. Come on up now. May the good Lord shine a light on you and make every song you sing your favorite tune. That is, uh, again, you never really get, uh, you know, unaffected uh sincerity from the rolling stones there's always a bit of distance this is one of those rare moments when you have it and i think to me the triumph of exile on main street is the inadvertent triumph of a song like shine a
Can I also say a word about mixed vocals here too? Yeah, please. They're, stylistically, they're getting a little bit far afield, not nearly as far afield as they would get in a couple albums hence. But Mick's range here is really tremendous. You guys were talking about in the in the earlier episode about how he's not that great a vocalist, and I agree with that. He's he's the best front man that rock and roll's ever seen. He's not a a, a a tremendously great vocalist in a in a classical sense but look what he does here and with the variety he gets ventilator blues he's basically doing sun house with that gravelly mississippi kind of thing uh shine a light like you said he's doing that soaring gospel really really nice um a song like torn and frayed country harmonies uh loving cup Country balladeering. By the way, loving, loving Cup, by the way, is, is you know the theme track to a very junk, sick Charlie Brown Christmas. That's what I love about that. <laughs> is it, if you listen to that opening piano line, it does sound like you know the the Coraldi, the, the Vince Coraldi, like yeah. you know do 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 do, like you know the, the the piano theme, and and yeah, it turns into this this song about Mick Taylor um, committing a sexual act upon a woman that is yeah. very intimate. <laughs> what can you say? say about this album is unlike some girls and we're going to talk about this a lot where the bonus tracks and outtakes are essential to understanding the album here they're really not uh the bonus tracks that they released a few years ago are mostly just demos early versions they're fine for the completest but they're not essential at all agreed completely agreed they they said everything they needed to say on the record (laughs) yeah um, let me, a couple of things, songs I love, just very quick. I love Soul Survivor, and then the lyrics are ridiculous. Uh, if you, the one thing about Exile is you don't know the lyrics until you actually see a lyric sheet sometimes, because of this. matey, but it's, sailing the high it's seas. It's the high seas, it's pirates. This, this but, is a prediction of Keith Richards as that guy in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, but Soul Survivor, I just love that guitar sound. Uh, let It Loose, I disagree with Jeff that it, that maybe it's one that should take, a, oh man, let, let It Loose, the gospel and soul element. Oh, no, you so misheard good. me. Let It Loose is amazing. No, other other I think Jeff. That's an amazing song. <laughs> uh, Ventilator Blues, which is one that where Mick Taylor got a got a co-write on. That hard slide, chest studio sound, fantastic. Just mentioned Love and Cup. But two uh, two ones that always sort of define the album for me. Uh, I, I, no one's mentioned Tumbling Dice. Uh, one of the XL songs that still gets played on tour. Tumbling Dice is I mean, it, it, that groove can cannot be beat. That perfect tempo. 
Um, this is one of the songs that goes back a bit, I think to 68 when it was first written. And, and Mick actually had to do some research. He was not a gambler. He actually talked to a, one of, I think, Keith's housekeepers who was a gambler uh, about some of the phrases and, and some of the words he could use in, in Tumbling Dice. Uh, there's this tangible ache to the song and uh, you know the swagger, the lyrics and melody are kind of turned upside down by that coda at the very, very end. What a great groove. Uh, this is one that where Charlie was having some trouble getting exactly what they wanted so Jimmy Miller plays too. There's actually two drums on Tumbling Dice. Highlight, and I know Jeff before has mentioned it, is Torn and Frayed. Goodness gracious, I love Torn and Frayed. Uh, Al Perkins uh, plays Pedal Steel on this country soul song. I I don't think they ever were able to replicate Torn and Frayed live the way they were able to capture it on, on Exile. And lyrically, no, they barely played it, I think. Yeah, and, and oh, I know what a Black Crows fan you are. The Black Crows version of that is outstanding from yes, their live show. Yes, which is where the first time I I, I heard the song was uh, was actually the first time I appreciated it. Really, is, is is hearing the Black Crows take on it. Yeah, but the lyrics here do kind of pull back the curtain a bit on what's happening, right? A dressing rooms filled with parasites on stage. The band has got problems. A little bit later on, you know, Joe's got a cough. Sounds kind of rough. Yeah, and the coding to fix it. Doctor prescribes, drugstore provides, who's going to help him kick it? Uh, which would be the description of virtually every person hanging around the band at this point, uh, coming through on Torn and Frayed. Street is uh, again you're talking about songs I, I agree with uh, Jeff Blair Casino Boogie is maybe the one that I uh, t- if you gotta you know, take a song off maybe Casino Boogie but everything else just works out just works so well together right through the very last track again I love Soul Survivor so of course from this from these heights of uh, from the height of heights here on Excellent Main Street they, they can't fall off from here right guys I mean they, they, they're in perfect shape to capitalize with their next album 
which happens to be goat's head soup. August of 1973, this is, uh, what, uh, it's, it's, it's the next year, again, as, as Jeff mentioned earlier, they're releasing albums uh, annually at this point. And it is, um, I think, without controversy to say that Goat's Head Soup is, is a step down from Exelon Main Street. I, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of blowback or, or discussion on that point. That said, there's some good things here on Goat's Head Soup, but from the very first track from Dancing with Mr. D, it's like there's alarm bells and, uh, and, and lights flashing. There's something wrong with what's going to transpire on Goat's Head Soup. Andy Johns and Jimmy Miller are, are producing, but they are lost uh, in the throes of, of heroin addiction, as is as is still Keith at this point. Keith Keith's uh, Bobby Keys is 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 a, is a junkie. He quits uh, mid tour around this time. This is just he a, got fired. How many times did he get fired? <laughs> uh, he got, he got fired. I think he got fired for like some sort of incredible groupie escapade in a hotel room or something like that. And then Mick Jagger, who of course was you know throughout all these things was on, the only reasonably sober person in the band was just like enough of this. I need a reliable person who I can trust. <laughs> um, and you know Keith at this point is basically emulating Brian. Uh, you know, the drugs and are out of control. Behavior is out of control. And on the flip side, you have uh, you know, from Mick's point of view, because Mick's always got the business perspective in his mind, um, not, not quite as much as he would maybe a decade from 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 this point. But Exile didn't sell all that well, and there wasn't a hit single, and so there, there's some concern too about well, commercially, how's it going to happen? Because as we mentioned earlier, the, the old stuff, the '60s stuff, they don't have the rights to, uh, they, they don't make you know the royalties off this, so. There's also some some question about uh, commercial success too, and, and so you have goat's head soup, and uh, I'll, I'll throw it open to uh, to you guys once again. I, I mean, from, a, from if Exile is a ten on a, on a ten point scale, how far of a step down is goat's head soup? Jeff, I'm going to throw this one to you first because my only question is, what the hell happened? No, I, I, I'm glad you threw it to me because I'm going to be a little contrarian about this. I don't think it's that far of a step down as some other people do. I would still give this album a seven or an eight. I really like it as a listen. Um, I think it would be better regarded, actually, had it not followed Exile and Sticky Fingers. Um, I don't mind Dance with Mr. D. To me, it sounds like uh, the Stones' answer to to Zeppelin-style riff rock. Uh, It's got that incessant riff. I never really get sick of it.
Coming Down Again is another one of those great morning after songs. The the line, Coming Down Again, Where Are All My Friends, that, that evocative hangover kind of imagery. Heartbreaker, or if you want to call it, do 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 do, is one of their <laughs> finest hard rock songs. It closes with this great Mick Taylor wah pedal rave up. And then Angie, which is hands down my favorite Stones ballad. I like it a lot more than... Um, than Wild Horses. Um, and, and what I'll say about Angie, too, is it's not a three-chord special like a lot of uh, the slower ballady songs are. Like, you can't always get what you want. It's it's three chords. This is, I think, uh, it's a little bit more innovative. They're using every key or every chord in the key, I think. Um, it's just gorgeous. And then we have, to me, one of the great mysteries in all of music, which is why Silver Train gets so little attention to this day. Uh, it picks up where On Down the Line leaves off as kind of a showcase for Mick Taylor's slide, but it ratchets up the country feel a little bit. It feels to me like something the Marshall Tucker Band could have done in 1973, and I say that complimentarily. Your Love is one of those blues numbers that they knock off in their sleep. It kind of reminds me of Parachute Woman. And then you've got Winter, which is a great druggy ballad. It's it's kind of like a poor man's Moonlight Mile all the way down to the strings at the end. The only song on the, on the disc that I really don't care for is Star Star. Uh, it dips into that Chuck, per- Chuck Berry playbook, uh, but not that effectively this time. It's sort of like... It's lazy. It's plug-and-play Chuck Berry, and if it weren't for the F-bombs in the chorus, the song would largely be forgotten. They, well, I mean, they, they, there, there are funny lines in it. There are funny lines in it where like, yeah, he's like, I ain't mad at you for giving the head to Steve McQueen. Right. <laughs> and, and they had to clear that with Steve McQueen before they, <laughs> they published it. And Steve McQueen was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, it, 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 you know, you're a, you're a star, effer, star, effer, star, effer, star, effer, star. You know, it's 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 almost like them trying to court controversy. Right. It reminds me of the, the later, the mid '70s, the Love You Live era, mm-hmm. where they're gonna, like Mick Jagger's literally riding on a giant inflatable penis. Yeah, you know, trying to like be like, oh, look at us, look at how daring and uh, you know transgressive we are. But nobody cared anymore, man. You know, you know, it, it remi- it, there's this there's this great article from the Onion. Um, uh, from like 1998 where they talk about Marilyn Manson this and Marilyn Manson is now going door to door trying to shock people <laughs> <laughs> because like nobody's shocked anymore like it's like yes we, we've heard it all before we've heard it all already and it just seems so lazy it just seems so tired I, I hate that song that song to me sounds like the sound of surrender yeah you
I don't think Jeff mentioned my favorite song on Goat's Head Soup. And by the way, I think, uh, to, to just kind of say how far down from a 10, it's probably a 5 or a 6, I guess. I, uh, 100 Years Ago is the best thing on this album. Uh, I don't think it's really close. Um, Billy Preston playing that clavinet. I'm thinking of starting a new corollary. The, the, uh, the, the, the I Preston, agree with you, by the, the way. The Preston-Cooter rule. If you have Billy Preston or Ry Cooter playing on your track, Chances are it's going to be extremely good. Uh, 100 years ago passes that test. Uh, Mick Taylor's got a nice solo rock funk track here with 100 years ago. Uh, that breakdown, uh, you know, the call me lazy bones part. The way it goes from there into that quick clavinet and then Charlie and, and Mick Taylor's solo toward, toward the end. Uh, 100 years ago, I think, is the best thing here. When I'd walk through the wood the other day Can't you see the bullet? Mr. D, I don't mind too much. I think Charlie's drum track here, the way they, they kind of gallop and clip-clop through Dancing with Mr. D helps it out a bit. But this is the start of, and, and they would get better, but it's uh, what I would call like like barely a song, right? Um, it's an excuse for a Keith riff and the band to play, and that's not always a bad thing, but I don't think it was as good as it could be with Dancing with Mr. D. Uh, I like Angie pretty well but one thing about angie is man nikki hopkins on piano just steals that song inspired inspired playing from nikki hopkins on, uh, on on angie the way he weaves his his line through the guitars the thing with hopkins too is largely when he plays he's not playing a repeated motif he's playing something different almost exclusively throughout the the course of the song that's true with with angie what a great great song but clearly uh, this is a step down from Exile, the end of, uh, again, Rock's greatest winning streak. I also have to say this is a huge step down in the cover art department. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, hey, I, I, hey, Mick, take this pair of pantyhose and stretch them over your face and we'll take or, a, or, as a As a friend of mine said, why does Keith Richards look like a poop stain <laughs> on the back of the cover? Because <laughs> he does. It just, I don't know what they I were going what for, they're doing there. but they didn't get there, whatever it was. The thing about Goat's Head Soup, you know, Angie is the, one of those songs that I know I'm supposed to hate, you know, uh, but I don't. I can't. I can't hate it. I can't hate it for the same reasons that, that Scott talked about. You know, Nicky Hopkins' piano on it is beautiful. Keith says that he, he wrote it while he was literally sitting on the toilet, um, <laughs> which is a way of perhaps sort of trying to downplay the, you know, the, the sweet balladry of it. But it's a it's a beautiful song. I, I I I want to dislike it, but I cannot. Oh, and you don't you weep. All your kisses still taste sweet. I hate that sadness in your eyes. But Angie, Angie, ain't it time we said goodbye?
nothing like a heartbreaker. No, no, I, I know, Jeff, you said it was a do, 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 do. But the, the, the proper way to pronounce that is do, 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 do. It's those nagging backing vocals. And you did exactly eight times. I yeah, can tell you for a fact. Because <laughs> I have the, to count them. I, 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 the thing about it is that you you listen to stuff that was coming around the same time as Heartbreaker, like uh, Living for the City by Stevie Wonder, which is obviously a much more real and powerful and gritty, you know, uh, understanding of like, yeah, problems in, in urban life, you know, and then you listen to this sort of like, you know, phantasmagoria horrorscape of uh, in New York City, you know, the police shot some poor kid chasing them through the park and, yeah, I don't know, you know, in a case of stake and identity and all that and it's it's uh <clears throat> lyrically it does not live up to the power of the backing track but again that backing track kind of gives rise to some of the, there are myths that are told about exile that we all now celebrate and we're like oh that's awesome keith richards you know badass you know he's, he's injecting heroin straight into his head but he's dervishing forth of all these great songs you know on heartbreaker the story goes is that he he spent like a half hour trying to overdub uh, a guitar solo onto Heartbreaker, <laughs> but nobody told him that he, because he was so high, he didn't realize he was playing a bass guitar instead of a <laughs> an actual guitar. Because, you know, he, he removes the string from his guitars these days. And uh, that just says everything you need to know about the decline between Exile and, and Goat's Head Soup. And also, it in a real and important way that it has to be emphasized for the rest of the Stones 70s up until Sun Girls, the way that Keith is going to become a passenger. Um, this is something he doesn't talk about. You know, there's a lot of myth making. You know, Keith wrote his biography, a really entertaining autobiography, by the way. In Life, uh, the uh, the the book Life, you should you read it. It's really good. It's really fun, but you shouldn't trust it <laughs> because he 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 kind of omits. Uh, or edits or uh, excuses away uh, the ways in which that he was not there present as the partner to Mick Jagger uh, on these mid seventies albums, and which leads you to it's only rock and roll, which is you know uh, you thought Goat's Head Soup was sort of like what what happened what happened after Exile, and then you understand when you listen to It's Only Rock and Roll, which is them just like literally uh, drowning in the middle of an ocean, treading water furiously, fighting for their lives, trying to keep their heads above the water, and <clears throat> there's no greater. Yeah, example of that than the title track which is not a rolling stones song at all <laughs> it was written by a guy who uh curiously enough would end up going on to become a member of the rolling stones ronnie wood uh mick jagger uh they uh you know they recorded goat's head soup they didn't they toured it the tour was actually really excellent and uh then they recorded it's only rock and roll and you know, Mick is just sort of, they start the sessions. There's not a lot of good material hanging around. So what are they going to do? He goes to a jam session with David Bowie and Ron Wood and a, you know, a bunch of other, you know, uh, luminaries from the United Kingdom rock music sing. 
and they uh, you come up with this song and a couple others, and then Mick literally at the end of the night, you know, it's like 6 a.m., and he strikes a deal with Ron Wood. He's like, okay, give me this song. I'll give you that other song. The other song that Mick gave to Ron was something called I Can Feel the Fire, which went on to his solo album. It's a good song. And uh, he, he said, like, you know, let's just do this. And I obviously set the scene, set the stage for him to later join the band. Um, it's Only Rock and Roll is a good song. It's not bad. It's over lengthy. It has all the hallmarks of a superstar rock jam session that you can sort of get from its sounds. And it, it sort of gives the game away uh, from where the Stones were in this doldrum period of their mid 70s. think about that song or this album uh, let's start it there i think the song's all right like you said it's good it's not great a little long and again it's the the, the, the basic track is is not the stones it's uh, it's the faces you know charlie's not on there and uh ron wood is of course who'd later be a rolling stone to me it's only rock and roll is about three three songs uh, if you can't rock me time waits for no one and fingerprint file everything else is just kind of taking up space uh but those are three in my mind excellent songs um if you can't rock me those first eight seconds with uh charlie's intro keith's riff and mick taylor's licks uh, i could listen to that on eight seconds on repeat all day long fantastic um you get to the solo part you have those kind of spastic keith riffs that lead into uh to mick taylor's solo just smoking solo uh if you can't rock me is a great leadoff track to the album and um one I would have loved, loved, loved to have seen live uh, a couple of weeks ago, months ago at, uh, at the Stone Show. But it does kick off the album, I think, out a very nice way. Fingerprint final, last one I will uh, I'll, I'll leave for, for perhaps Jeff to talk about. Um, but Time Waits for No One, I, I gotta uh, mention, this was one I pointed out earlier. 
when we talked about the genius of Mick Taylor, this is one that he definitely feels he deserves a co-write on. In fact, says that Mick Jagger promised him he would get a co-write on. It was not until someone called him and saw the printed album uh, sleeve and said, hey, mate, you know, you're not a co-writer. Yeah. Time waits for no one. And uh, Mick Taylor did not feel good about that. Now, now, why did Mick Taylor leave the Stones uh, very soon? Uh, we'll get, to the, get into that in a second. Uh, drugs, one. He thought he might die, which, I mean, frankly... Uh, he probably might have. Probably might have. <laughs> uh, but but not getting co-writes on some of these songs he felt he, he justifiably deserved is another reason. And I, it's nowhere more clear than Time Waits for No One. This is a, this is a, this is a Mick Taylor song. Um, you, can, you can hear it from, from start to finish. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think Mick, being the, the, the smart business guy who kind of had his head on his shoulders here, knew the consequences of, of making a song Jagger Taylor and not Jagger Richards and what that would mean to the already disintegrating relationship between the two it meant a bit of fatal blow and so do you want to uh, you know to to annoy Mick Taylor by not giving him a co-write on Time Waits for No One or do you want to completely drive away your longtime friend and songwriting partner and the core of the band well he chose going with a default Jagger Richards song writing credit on Time Waits for No One now the song itself starts with Charlie on this this TikTok kind of pattern on his drums, uh, feeding into the theme. Time waits for no one. Mick kind of sings this with the with almost a Caribbean island accent. He would kind of do more of this these, these character voices almost uh, through the years. And there's this wonderful kind of mystic feel to it. Uh, and toward the end, you get three plus minutes of Mick Taylor's soul stirring solo. One take live. In the studio, again, this is a very much a Mick Taylor, Nicky Hopkins song. The way that they play with each other and off of each other. Time waits for no one. Six and a half plus minutes. It ends with Taylor's solo sort of fading out and Charlie's picking up that tick-tock pattern again on the drum kit. Man, do I love Time Waits for No One. It is, uh, for me, far and, uh, far and away, the highlight of its only rock and roll. you've said all there is to say about that is kind of laurel canyon meets london sound and probably mick taylor's last great solo with the band um to dwell on fingerprint file a little bit more it's one of their first great funk rave ups and i think it's probably keith's first use of use of the phase pedal ever mm -hmm. um 
it gets a little political, uh, 30 years ahead of its time, maybe, in taking on the surveillance state. And if I can even back up to Heartbreaker, uh, I know you guys are familiar with the Brussels show from 73. In Heartbreaker, they break down in the middle into this huge funk jam for two or three minutes. Uh, it almost sounds like a Curtis Mayfield Superfly kind of thing. That, to me, is there's a direct line from that into what Fingerprint File would become. I, I don't know. Way better lay low. It's, it's obvious to me, finally, with this record. If there's some debate from Goathead Soup, there's no debate now. The golden era is, is, is over. Uh, Jimmy Miller's gone. They're mostly self-producing. And I think the rule for the albums going forward now is that they're, they've gotten a little over, all over the place stylistically, as I, as I alluded to before, uh, and quality-wise. Uh, they certainly start listening to reggae. They sound like they're listening to Nile Rodgers and Chic. And that, some of that influence is coming in. Um, it's just a, a, a confounding album in that it doesn't really cohere the way their earlier albums did. Um, the Temptations cover is unnecessary, as but we'll talk a lot more about that with some girls. Um, the title track, is, as, as we've said, is, is, is good, not great. Luxury is one of their first stabs at reggae, uh, complete with Mick affecting his Jamaican accent, which I think it does not work at all. It's it's embarrassing, maybe not quite as embarrassing as Short and Curly's, but it's really hard to imagine Mick Jagger. It's really hard to imagine Mick working for the company. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that 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 ain't that ain't that ain't Mick Jagger, international rock star in any way, right? And I think Keith is actually hanging out in Jamaica at this at this stage by now, isn't he? He, well, he literally the, moved there, yeah. and, and not permanently, but the only uh, country they would have him, sure. Uh, yeah, but it, the idea is that he was going to wean himself off of heroin by getting uh, addicted to marijuana. Guess perfect. what? It didn't work. Yeah, um, but. This is it's certainly the weakest album of theirs uh, to date, really, since their since their debut. And the thing about it, it's only rock and roll. I mean, you guys have it basically said everything. I, I will say this, that I, I think that Ain't Too Proud to Beg, I like, I like it. It's not great. It's not better than the Temptations original version, but it's an okay cover. Uh, I think the first half of the album is pretty well sequenced. If you could just take off, uh, you know, if you, will, if you really want to be my friend. Uh, that's n I, the first moment when I listen to the Rolling Stones and I think, oh, no, this is just generic garbage. This isn't even really very, like, 
uh, or no, it's you know what I realized that's on the second side. It's till the next goodbye. It's on the mm-hmm. first side, which tells you something that you can you can consider these songs interchangeable. <laughs> this is where they start to bore me. The first half of that album is pretty well sequenced. You start with "If You Can't Rock Me." good song ain't too proud to beg decent cover goes straight into it's only rock and roll and then till the next goodbye that's a mistake okay fine we'll let it go ends that first half ends with time waits for no one which scott and i both agree on is the best song on this record and uh then the second half of this album up until fingerprint file is appallingly generic I don't mind it when the Stones try and fail. There are songs on a goat's head soup that fail. Like when you hear the music, which is like them trying to do like their Satanic Majesty's request over again in 1973, 72. No, it didn't work. But they made an attempt to do something different. And then you hear stuff like Dance Little Sister. And it's just like four and a half minutes of generic rock crap this would become a problem ironically enough i don't think until later on after some girls mm-hmm. uh, it's where they fall into patterns and that's my problem with it's only rock and roll and uh, the thing is is that a lot of people a lot of people will say the same thing about their next album uh, and I'm going to vehemently disagree with them. Uh, Black and Blue is 1976. They took forever to record this album. The story behind it is as fraught as Let It Bleed or Their Satanic Majesties. They started recording it in late 1974. After day one of the sessions, Mick Taylor walks up at a party to Mick Jagger, who happens of all things to be talking with ron wood and says hey you know what uh i gotta quit the band i'm leaving i'm done i'm gone bye 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 i'm done i'm finished and he leaves he walks out of the party (laughs) and mick doesn't even understand what it is he's just heard and he turns to ronnie and he says what the the hell just happened and and ronnie famously says like i think he was serious mate (laughs) (laughs) and uh, mick left mick left them and uh you know as as scott said i think the real reason he quit is probably it's not the songwriting credits he probably never felt like he was truly integrated into the heart of the band but i think it was more about the drugs and the life and the feeling that like i'm i'm just not gonna live if i can continue writing on this merry-go-round so what do they do they need a new guitarist they need a new second guitarist someone to bounce off of keith richards and they audition uh basically the who's who of the awesome primarily united kingdom uh guitar scene everyone from jeff beck whose outtakes still remain unfairly unheard uh to uh harvey uh wayne perkins and and Ron Wood comes in and does some stuff and what do they do they say they don't have an answer so they say screw it we gotta go on tour we finally got a permit to tour in the United States they go in 1975 who is the one they pick they pick Ron Wood he seems like he gets along with Keith pretty well Well, don't forget Eric Clapton yeah Clapton but yeah there's Can a, you imagine Clapton and the Stones? <laughs> no, there's a great story. I think it might be apocryphal, but nevertheless, 
when they were both auditioning, Clapton apparently told Ronnie at the time, I'm a better guitar player than you, to which Ronnie replied, yeah, but you can't live with these guys. I can. (laughs) That was the the end of it. And you know what? You know, Ronnie could, but he also became a depraved junkie as well. So that's what living with the Stones is. If you're hanging out with Keith, uh, the end result is an album called Black and Blue that finally comes out in 1976. This is an album that went to number one in the United States. It's a number one hit album. Um, but if there is any way to claim that any of these number one albums during the Stones' mid-70s commercial like uh, blockbuster era are underrated, I would claim that it is this. I love this record, and they don't. Nobody talks about it. They don't play any of the songs from it anymore, really. And maybe Fool to Cry or Memory Motel will come out every now and then. Uh, This one was reviled by the critics who didn't seem to understand that the Stones are supposed to keep up on trends and play, you know, like new African-American black music and, you know, trendy music. I think that Black and Blue is a fantastic record. And practically nobody else agrees with me except for Scott, who I want to hear chime in and support me on my lone stand. I love black and blue, and um, I, I don't think I love it ironically. I mean, I, I love it as an album. Uh, I can't remember. Black and blue is one of the final additions I made to my Rolling Stones collection, uh, you know, purchase. And um, I don't remember what set me off to do it it may have just been hey i don't i don't have this yet i might as well finish the collection but uh, it's one of those ones i mean if you love the stones and, and you love their groove i don't know why you would not like black and blue um you you have harry mandel wayne perkins and ron wood playing at different times on different songs on the album you have two songs that don't get writing credits but inspired by credits hey negrita with ron wood and melody from billy preston which was really just a preston song the stones you know glommed onto. uh it's around this time where keith looks back and says you know our problem around this time was we let our, the sidemen take over we'd have a great stone song and then you know this one of the side guys would, would do his thing and, and change it and like well sorry you, keith that right. was your saving grace <laughs> you weren't you weren't conscious i don't know what to tell you keith uh, <laughs> it to somehow move forward but look right from the top hot stuff this is another one in a continuing line of uh, again barely a song stones songs that i love i love hot stuff uh, Harvey Mandel's on the guitar here. It's just a groove. I mean, there really are no lyrics either until Mick's vamping at the end. But that disco funk groove, it slams. And, uh, you know, Charlie Watts' brilliant. So much of it is in, in, in the wrist. It's in the hands. With Black and Blue, uh, you start to hear how huge his bass drum can sound and can play in the proceedings, the role it plays. And it's true on, on Hot Stuff right on the opening track. Hot Stuff! Hand of Fate 
Hand of Fate, if not Monkey Man, Hand of Fate is the most overlooked great Rolling Stones track out there. Hand of Fate smokes. It is outstanding. This, the lyrics about this, this southern murder, right? Uh, I had to save a life. I gunned him twice. It has this unbelievable momentum to it throughout the entire song. You get to the very end. Too late, baby. It's too late now. Charlie kicks up the rhythm. He is wailing on the hi-hat toward the, uh, toward the very end of the song. It is just a great song. Wayne Perkins has a smoking solo on Hand of Fate. Perkins would later say, before he even played a note for the Stones, Perkins said they, they put a spotlight on him in a room and sized him up to see if he looked like a Rolling Stone should. Um, Perkins could play, man. And one of my favorite alternate Rolling Stones histories is if the Stones end up choosing Wayne Perkins instead of Ron Wood to play in the Stones. Perkins had a great solo on Hand of Fate. He plays on Memory Motel. He plays on Fool to Cry. He would play, well, he played now, and then it would be brought back later on uh, Tattoo You track or two. Worried About You. Worried About You, which is just fantastic. Um, But going forward forward with Perkins instead of Wood, I don't, I kind of play that out in my mind. I think they may have been a more interesting band, but they had some girls next, so who's to say how that changes? I think Perkins would have been a great fit. I really, really do. But at the same time, Ron Wood, you know, moving ourselves forward a bit in the, in, in the, in the conversation, keeps this band together at so many turns, and uh, he fit in so well with, with Keith, and he was like family. So I don't know if they, if they survive the ups and downs, if, if, you know, Perkins is the guy, it's probably better off that Wood was. It's not as if they were a crap band with Ron Wood in it, but I like to think about what might have happened if Wayne Perkins would have been the choice. Uh, but yeah, Black and Blue, man, great album. And, and, and the, two, the two ballads, which I'll, I'll leave perhaps uh, Jeff to discuss, Memory Motel and Fool to Cry are just great. Memory Motel, seven plus minutes. It's almost a duet with Keith's, uh, you know, she got a mind of her own and she used it well. It's, it's one of Keith's great backing vocal performances. Yeah. Most, most iconic. Yeah. Uh, what I keep going back to is I think their choice in drugs tends to overlap with their choice in guitar players. You know, with the Brian Jones <laughs> era, you had the LSD and pot. And then with Mick Taylor, you had the smack. And now getting into Ronnie, you get into the cocaine period, which makes sense because they're hanging out at Studio 54 and they're becoming kind of a New York band and they're integrating some some more uh, funk and reggae sounds and disco sounds into their into their sound, but this to me overall feels like you might bleep this out, but it feels like their 1970s cock rock record things that, uh, that, you know, fog hat might do. Uh, and I, so I don't have the same opinion of this that you guys do. I think it's lesser than goat's head soup. I think it's a lot better than I lo- than, uh, it's only rock and roll. However, um, I think the opener is a little underwhelming, um, you've got not one but two reggae tracks. Uh, Cherry O is another humiliating put on, although I think Hey Negrita does work better because it integrates some of those reggae elements into their own sound. And it's a, it's a part of the track. It's not the whole track. Um, I just don't know what to say about melody. Uh, it sounds like the Stones are, are covering a Rosemary Clooney song. It, it's 
it just makes no sense whatsoever. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Mick Jagger is chewing a juicy morsel of steak around <laughs> his mouth. And he is loving. He is loving all of those inflections. And the same thing goes for Keith. Keith is finding these voicings on his guitar that he has never played. And he's just going jazzy and you know, in funk, and I, yeah, it, melody. It, for those who don't know, it's a Billy Preston song, and of course, again, like Hey Negrita, which is a Ron Wood song, they stole the credits. Time waits for no one. Basically, a Mick Taylor song. Stole the credits. This is the Jagger Richards ethos. But on that song, um, I love the way Mick sings it. Because he just has this this joie de vivre, he just loves getting those words out of his mouth, and I I, I get it. I, people was like they played it by the way, they played it live, you know, briefly at least in 1977. Um, I get why people say like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound stonesy enough to me. But I like the Rolling Stones when they take those left turns. They're they're accomplished enough as players and accomplished enough as singers and performers that they can pull it off. And so I really like that song. That's the one that when you say like, I really like black and blue and they're like, what about melody? I'm like, <laughs> for you, melody is great. talk much about fool to cry it's one of the first songs i think where jagger really uses the falsetto to great effect um he hadn't broken that out a lot and he's going to break it out a lot on on some girls and some of the subsequent albums he uses it really really well Completely agree with Scott about Hand of Fate. Uh, 
I, it's another one where I don't know why that song never became one of their classic rock radio staples. I mean, Hand of Fate by itself is better than Bad Company's entire career. <laughs> and, and it never gets played. It's, it's bizarre. You have to go to like uh, Sirius XM deep tracks to ever hear that on the radio. And uh, Black and Blue, as Jeff said, went to number one. There was a bit of a controversial ad campaign, billboard campaign. Uh, the woman tied up. I was left blue by the uh, Black and Blue by the Rolling Stones. So they, they got their controversy out of it, too. Um, and uh, so that, that brings us to, um, to Some Girls, um, which is... Let's pause. Let's just pause for a second. Because <laughs> we need to understand what happens before Some Girls. So... The Rolling Stones go on tour. They're doing their, uh, you know, big follow-up to get your eyes out. All sorts of rights issues have prevented them from releasing a live album uh, up until this point. Now they're finally free to do so. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mick Mick is gone, and they're auditioning a new guitarist. They, they maybe pass their sell-by dates on some of their classic tunes, like you can't always get what you want, and uh, they. they do their 1975 1976 shows and they realize ah you know what this is this is gonna suck and so what they what they realize is that yeah we gotta book some shows we gotta book some shows uh in a in a small club uh what they choose is elmo cambo uh, in toronto uh famous small club elvis elvis costello recorded a pretty famous live record there and um the only problem is that Keith Richards decided that, hey, you know, we're going to be going to the Elmo Combo. We're going to be going to Toronto for, we're going to record several shows. It'll be about a week there. So let's bring an entire continent's worth of heroin <laughs> with us. And of course, of freaking course, <laughs> the, the police found it when they passed through customs, and because the police are not stupid, they uh, they checked it and they let them through, and then they waited four days to bust them through Keith Richards into jail. Keith Richards was booked not just, by the way, I might point out, on. Uh, drug abuse or you know, you know ownership of drugs, but on drug trafficking, <laughs> they booked him for being like uh, you know you know a, a mule, a Medellin Colombian yeah. drug trafficker. He was Pablo Escobar to them. 
and uh, he, uh, this is bad. This is the moment where the Rolling Stones, you, know, you thought the 1967 drug busts were bad enough. This is the moment where they, they could have literally fallen apart because, like, you know, who knew what the Canadians were going to do, right? Um, and he, he literally had, like, seven mason jars full of 100% pure heroin. I can't even imagine, like, you couldn't hand that out to people on the streets, and get rid of it enough to use that much of it. I, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, this is the moment where Keith was A, thrown into jail, forced to detox. Uh, it's also the source of one of the great modern um, lights on life, which is Love You Live, the terrible Rolling Stones live album that we won't talk about. Ironically enough, the only good part of it is the 1977 Toronto El Mocambo side. Um, but what happened is that Mick Jagger, who was trying to like help Keith out through this horrible situation, moved to New York City. He moved to New York. He's living with him there. Uh, Keith is doing rehab. I don't know if it's up in Vermont or up in Canada. I can't. I don't even know what it is. He got off uh, all sorts of technicalities. Uh, the rich just get different rewards and different treatment by the justice system than the poor. It's cruel, but uh, at least at this point, I'm thrilled that it happened because what happened is that Mick spending time in New York City and having to deal with Keith's problems and having to also deal with something that simultaneously happened, which is the punk explosion uh, created Some Girls, an album which is a reaction, a rejection, a rejuvenation. You could characterize it in so many different ways. Uh, this is the album that, that, that people commonly cite as this is where the Stones were reborn. This is where the Stones came back. This is where the Stones were finally great again after Exile. I don't know if I'd agree with that because I think Black and Blue is a pretty great record. But this is Some Girls. This is New York City, North America, the modern punk scene, the disco scene, all simultaneously happening at the same time. This is a record that I think still holds up to this day. It's, it's still all over the place, like a lot of the other records I talked about. But here it does work a little bit better. And that's in no small part because the songs are just better. Um, there's early rock. There's funk. There's disco. There's post-punk. There's blue-eyed soul. Of course, there's, there's country. I don't 
want to talk about every song on the record because I'll, I'll leave some some meat left for Scott. But there's a couple I'd like to focus on. Um, when the Whip Comes Down, one of my favorite Stones tracks, which is not actually a song about congressional leadership, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it is a song apparently about a trash collector who moonlights as a male prostitute. Um, when people talk about the Stones' bounce, that little lag between Keith's rhythm guitar yep. and Charlie's yep. drumming, this song is what they is what they mean. This is the song I point people to when we talk about it. How Keith jumps the gun a little bit on the downbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not exactly an upbeat, but he anticipates the downbeat by a fraction of a second uh, ahead of Charlie. That's really hard to capture, and this song really, really brings that to the forefront. Faraway Eyes, um, I'm torn on it. I, I like it. We've played it live. That chorus is just tremendous. I mean, uh, Conway Twitty wishes he wrote a country chorus <laughs> that good. Um, but it really does walk the line between homage and parody. And it doesn't always walk that line straight and true. It's, uh, it's one step up from a novelty song. Listen, uh, you and I have both run red lights for Jesus. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. I, I love for for me the only part of that song that I really truly like is that opening monologue. Mm. Yeah, you don't like the chorus? I think the chorus is tremendous. If you took out the spoken word stuff, <laughs> okay, you know, we'll get maybe you'll get to this later. But there's so much other great country stuff they recorded during these sessions. Yes, I mean, is it, is it time to do bonus tracks now? Or are we going to pause on that? Yeah, you go for it. You know, just literally yeah, listen. We'll, we'll work it all in. Go. Yeah. I mean, I mean. <laughs> you can't talk about some girls without talking about the bonus tracks from the reissue and whether the album could have a even been better or B released as a completely uh, as an additional album. <clears throat> Claudine, no spare parts. Do you think I really care? Which is a country song about New York of all things. Tallahassee Lassie. Uh, there's the B side. Everything is turning to gold. These are great, great tracks, and why they sat on them this long is 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 anybody's guess. Um, as I as I said in our emails before, um, you you could have uh, substituted any one of them for just my imagination and and had a better record. Jeff, go. Lot, please I, I, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're going to eject you from the show <laughs> because uh, here's the here's the big fight point. As we discovered, uh, as we talked about this in our pre-show, uh, everybody else on the podcast here hates the Rolling Stones cover of The Temptations, Just My Imagination. I think it's the best thing they've ever done in terms of covers. I literally think that... Um, <clears throat> They did another Temptations cover in Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and it sounded like a cover of a Temptations song. 
what I love about just my imagination is how they entirely recast it and they turn it into a song that sounds like a Rolling Stone song that the Temptations first got to. And then the Rolling Stones later did their version of it. Uh, the Stones do a, a post-punk influenced. It's very new wave. It, it glides along upon this groove. And, uh, I just think it's so wonderful. It's one of their finest songs from the later era of the Stones. And it will maybe make my top five at the end of the show. And I know you guys don't like it, so <laughs> screw you. <laughs> Yeah, you're wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a bad cover. Uh, <laughs> some girls, I, I I mean, some girls is a very very good album. I do not like it as much as as some do. Uh, Miss You is not my favorite Stones discoish track that will come on the on the next album. Um, the like lies and respectable, where it is about fast, 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 breakneck speed, kind of that that punk answer. I never am quite sure how I feel about those tracks on this album i want sometimes we we gloss over the the big songs because people have heard them and they know them so well so i i want to take just a moment and talk about the 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 big singles from some girls you get through some girls and it's miss you and faraway eyes and lies respectable all the way to the end and you get to two essentially flawless songs to close out some girls first beast of burden beast of burden is one of those like people just kind of i don't know maybe i'm talking for myself forget how good it is or kind of push it off to the side like oh yeah it's beast of burden listen to it again listen to it again beast of burden is a monster of a song it contains in my mind the the platonic ideal of how keith's and and ron wood's uh guitars are able to interweave and play with each other it is the ideal of how that should work inside the rolling stones chris kimsey we should mention engineering and, and mixer for for some girls does a lot on this album you know mix vocals for so long uh in, in the stones canon are, are way down in the mix it's the old blues thing they are just the vocals are just another instrument they're just loud as the drums or the guitar but kimsey lifts them up especially on beast of burden i mean mick is front and center on beast of burden <laughs>
and uh, it, it helps the song, right? You you have um, you have those harmony vocals, hard enough and rough enough and rich enough. Uh, Keith playing that slapback echo on on the guitar. Beast of Burden's a monster tune. And then you close with Shattered. Oh, I Shattered is so good. I never tire of hearing Shattered, that punk funk rhythm to it. Uh, one of the first times I listened to it with headphones on is when I realized that they've got that pedal steel working under the guitar solo in Shattered. I love that so much. The hand claps that uh, that come up during the beginning of that, that solo part as well. Is there a better set of lyrics ever written about New York City than Pride and joy and greed and sex, that's what makes our town the best. Pride and joy and dirty dreams and still surviving on the street. That's New York City. That That's what Nick Dude, is He finding. talks about schmata. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're like, you got to be living in the garment district to understand that reference. You can't give it away on 7th Avenue. Yeah. No, exactly. Don't you know the crime rate's going up? Oh, oh, out scott that um no woman i've ever known on the planet has been able to resist beast of burden hmm. they'll claim that they don't like it they'll claim they're <laughs> only into hip-hop or modern music or miley cyrus or taylor swift or this that or the other thing and then you put on beast of burden and you're ain't a rough enough ain't a hard enough and you know they're just like yeah bopping they're, and there's simply bopping. no way in hell that Prince wasn't influenced by Beast of Burden. Of course not. I mean, who couldn't help but be influenced by it? It's a beautiful song. It's the ancient art of guitar weaving. So good. I mean, it is so, so good. Um, that's uh, that's what I've got on some girls. Do you want to move on to Emotional Rescue? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's so, do it. So this is uh, Some Girls is 78. It's a huge smash. Uh, Miss You goes to number one of the charts. Um, and uh, the, the follow-up in 1980, so two years after that, is, is Emotional Rescue. Um, this is a not well-thought-of album in the Stones canon. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's decent. Um, it's decent. Um, this is where, after Some Girls is kind of this over-the-top success of Mick and Keith, at least in some ways, working together again, uh, that, that the relationship again starts to fray here on Emotional Rescue. Mick pulls back a bit from investing himself in some songs. Keith thinks Mick is getting in, getting in his way. Mick is, uh, or Keith is acquiescing on some some points to sort of make sure that the band continues. Uh, Keith thought Mick listened to crap music and wanted to bring that crap into the Rolling Stones. That's essentially what, what, what happens during some of this era. Uh, and, and with Keith kind of reasserting himself and, you know, back from the dead, so to speak, or back from his 
drugged out Hayes and, and sort of wanting that equal partnership again, Mick isn't sure he kind of wants to give that up, um, being being the, the leader, the, the man directing the Rolling Stones. And in all of that comes comes emotional rescue. I, I told you that Miss You is not my favorite uh, Stones disco track. Dance Part One, which is the first track at Emotional Rescue, I uh, I think it's better than than Miss You. Um, that that riff, which is it's a Ron Wood riff that drives Dance Part One, it is impossible to remove from your brain. And I blame well, it was Jay, Jay Cost and, and then Jane Coaston. Both of them talked a week or two ago about how much they love Dance Part Part One. And since then, I have not gone a day without listening to Dance Part One. Cannot get it out of my head. Uh, and that, that that opening patter of Mick kind of just barely off mic. Uh, you know, what are you, hey, Keith, what, 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 you, what you doing? Uh, get up, get out, get into something new. You're standing on the corner of West 8th Street and 6th Avenue. Uh, Dance Part One is just great, great. I'm sorry, Scott. I gotta tell you that you're, you're garbage. You're a garbage person with garbage opinions because <laughs> Dance Part Two is actually the superior song. Dance Part Two is very Dance good. Dance Part but- Two only released as a B-side, and uh, you can find it on Sucking in the Seventies. If I were a dancer, Dance Part Two. The horns That's even better than Dance Part One. The horns are better, but it doesn't have Mick asking Keith what he's doing, which brings a smile to my face every time I hear it. I so know, I have to. I have but to yes, I completely agree with you about the groove. It's just a fantastic song nobody grooves like the rolling stones when, when they get into it when, when you talk about hot stuff again i dancing with mr d is kind of in this area dance part one uh maybe talk about slave in in a minute those are the, again they're barely songs they're just excuses for this riff and this band to work to operate and nobody grooves like the Rolling Stones, and it's so much to do with the rhythm section, too, with Charlie Watson and Bill Wyman, and Dance Part 1 is right there. Uh, All About You is a great song on Emotional Rescue. It's R&B ballad. uh, It's a Keith song. It's the last song on the album, I think. Um, Either aimed at Mick or aimed at at Anita, depending on how you want to read the lyrics, and maybe both. Uh, But, you know, sick and tired of hanging out with dogs, sick and tired of hanging out with jerks. It's a very raw, emotional track. Uh, I, I think it's maybe the best, well, dance part one, yeah, but, but All About You just sounds so good. It's just, it's just mixed very, very well.
Rest of it, there's a lot of uh, I think take it or leave it tracks. Uh, send, send it to me, let me go is kind of generic. Uh, Indian girl, uh, and then you get like where the boys go, which is kind of a lies rewrite. Some romance, which is kind of a respectable rewrite. There's a little bit of recycling happening, and not in the in the best way of what would happen next with tattoo you. Um, Emotion rescue feels a bit like a retread to me on, on many levels. Yeah, there's, there's there are too many songs for sure that sound like stuff that was already on some girls. It's funny that you said that some romance uh, found, sounds like a, a rewrite of respectable. It sounds like to me at least a rewrite of lies. Which it was my least favorite song. Some girls. To uh, me, it sounds like a Tom Petty song. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Tom Petty fan. And by I the way, against it, Tom Petty, just in the same way that Where the Boys Go to Me sounds like a Clash song. That, but you see, that's the thing. That's why this is not a bad album. It's no. just not a great one. And you can see, like, uh, it's far too clear where, like, yeah, yeah, they're taking necks off of other people. It's not the pioneering uh, we're one step ahead of the game kind of thing that you hear on some girls or even on black and blue for that matter i i i gotta say one thing i will i will really stand up for is the title track i think emotional rescue that title song where mick is just singing you know i'll be a lover straight and true i come to your emotional rescue it's ridiculous. And yet, you know, as I think he himself said, it's like, why do you have a problem with this? Prince put out three straight albums where all he did was sing in falsetto. <laughs> and you guys have a problem with us doing it? Of course they did, because the Rolling Stones are the Rolling Stones. They've been around since 1963, and they're very white. But I think it's a good song. I really think it holds up. That's, and That's the Stone like, song for me. You mentioned, I can't remember which one you said. You don't want to like it, but you do. For me, it's emotional rescue. I, I don't yeah. want to love emotional rescue, but I do. It's so I icy. Know, it's, 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 it, 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 it worms its way into your brain. <laughs> this whole record is it doesn't really sound that much like the stones per se but if you can go into it if you can divorce it from your preconceptions of what the stones should sound like it's a pretty good record i mean here's the funny thing we talk about albums that sound like outtakes right well uh what happens when the stones actually release a new album that really is just an album of outtakes 
takes, and that is Tattoo You. This is the one that basically kind of, for most people, marks the end of the classic Stones era. It's the uh, you know the last number one that they had, and for many, 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 many years until the point where getting a number one on the Billboard charts didn't mean anything anymore. And uh, it, this is the one that they they had a tour coming. They had to put a tour together, so they were like, "Crap, we need product to sell." <laughs> so they, what they did is they got Chris, Chris Kimsey to go back with Mick Jagger and look through all the vaults and uh, dig in the archives and find all of their best cast-off songs. And they put together an album that is shockingly, amazingly good. <laughs> it begins with Start Me Up, their last number one hit single. It ends with Waiting on a Friend, which you know, and I'm sure you like. It has Worried About You, has Hang Fire, Black Limousine, Neighbors. This is an album comprised almost entirely of stuff that was thrown off as not being worthy of released on earlier albums. But uh, I love it. I love it. I love it to death. And I just don't understand why people uh, treat it as a secondary record in their career. I think it's like maybe the last coherent expression of their classic phase. Yes. I, I think I personally, for too long, dismissed this record because of the opening track, because I've heard it so many times at so many sporting events. It's one of those songs that you just never, ever need to hear again. Um, but then you go deeper than that, and it's so good. Uh, Slave is just this great jammy groove. Again, it's got just enough reggae influence to keep it fresh, but not so much that it overwhelms things. It goes on for, what, six or seven minutes, and I kind of wish it went on for 12 minutes. Limousine is a great blues album track, a deep cut. It's the kind of blues that they that they do in their sleep again. Uh, but it also shows off mixed chops on the harp. You, t- uh, you talk about uh, earlier, I know you talked about Brian Jones on the harp, but I remember in his book, Keith raves about mixed harp playing. And this, this proves that, it, what a good harp player he is. Um, Little TNA is another standout Keith song, um, and it kind of is a template for the kind of Keith songs that would be on every record from here on out. Just a chugging open G riff, and he can knock out two or three of those on every record, and they're all listenable. They're all solid. You can you can take it to the bank that that's going to be on every album. Um, Mick, I, I will say Mick really keeps the band going from a business and publicity standpoint throughout the 80s, but given all his experimentation stylistically it's really the keith comes back to the fold and he kind of keeps the musical soul of the band going when all this other craziness is going on he'll still do a rockabilly tune he'll still do a chuck berry influenced tune and kind of keeps the whole band rooted 
Absolutely. I, I don't know if it's a hot take or not. I, I suppose it is. I did a long tweet storm about this like two years ago. Tattoo You is better is a better album than than Some Girls in in my mind. I, I think Tattoo You is fantastic, and, and and to have it pieced together from Black and Blue outtakes and Some Girls extras and all these songs, Chris Kimsey found they had to because Mick and Keith weren't talking. They couldn't they couldn't produce anything. They even fought about the name of the album. Keith insists insists it was supposed supposed to be called Tattoo, and he blames Mick for adding the U. Uh, the second word on the album title. But yeah, Start Me Up and Waiting on a Friend book and this album. Everybody knows those from start to finish. Uh, uh, Jeff mentioned Slave, which yes, it could be 12, it could be 18 minutes. I want more Slave. Uh, little TNA, my, one of my favorite parts on the album is uh, two, two and a half minutes in, that little breakdown when everything drops out except for Charlie's drums and he sort of switches the, the, the beat, the rhythm a bit, and it's just Charlie and Keith for about 15 seconds. That's my favorite part of Little TNA. Um, and what if I told you the best black and blue ballad isn't actually on black and blue? It's true. Worried about worried you. about you. Yeah. Yes. Is better than I mean, fool to cry and and uh, and uh, memory and, motel. And motel are both great. Worried about you is better. I desperately wanted to hear Worried About You at the Stone Show from this year, and I knew they weren't going to play it, and, and they didn't, of course. But Worried About You is absolutely fantastic the first song on the second side the slower ballad side uh it's a tour de force for jagger starting in that falsetto and as the song goes on the band kicks in uh the, the passion from the late verses the yeah i'm a hard-working man with the way he slides in for that final verse wayne perkins with the solo on worried about you just kills it uh, Worry About You is probably my favorite track on, on Tattoo You. Catches that that snap, that bounce of Charlie's snare better than than anything else. And again, credit to to Chris Kimsey for pulling out these tracks. Mick had to go back and put lyrics on virtually everything here. Recorded it out in Los Angeles. Uh, there's even a Mick Taylor track, Tops, where you hear Mick Taylor play. Heaven is the spacey, atmospheric song. No Keith involved. It's just Mick Jagger strumming on his guitar. It's an emotional rescue outtake. Like that one quite a bit as well. I don't know uh, if you guys are with me, uh, maybe not. But I, again, I, I think Tattoo You is a superior album to some girls. It is one of the Stones albums I go back to most often to hear again and again. I think, you know, I don't know if I would agree that it's more if, if it's a greater record than some girls, because some girls has sort of those iconic singles. If it's got Beast of Burden, it's got Miss You, it's got it's Respectable. But what, what Tattoo You has is perfect quality control, which comes from plumbing your archives and doing vicious quality control. There, that, that, that song that you just mentioned, Heaven, 
where um it it's this weird uh, it sounds it sounds very uh you know post-punk world beatish almost there's no real lyrics it's like a, a great change of pace it's exactly the kind of change of pace that they would have wanted to manufacture for an album recording session but they couldn't <clears throat> but they had one of them in the vaults and so they just threw it right on there and thank god chris kimsey kept great diaries to do that uh waiting on a friend that was the other one by the way tops and waiting on a friend both of them are mick taylor era songs they're from goat's head soup This is a record. This is they released a record of outtakes uh, in 1975. They didn't. Uh, Alan Klein did it for them, uh, called Metamorphosis. It's just almost entirely garbage. The first half is just basically Andrew Oldham demos, and you don't want to hear how badly like random studio players sound playing those songs. And then the uh, second half is some sort of beggar's banquet, let it bleed era, sticky fingers era stuff. It's not that great. Uh, this is the outtakes album the Rolling Stones ever and always deserved. And it was a number one hit album. And uh, I just think that I'm surprised at how maybe this is down to the mix. Maybe Bob Clearmountain gets a lot of credit for making all of these songs sound as if they are of a piece. But this man, this album holds up. This album is, uh, I, I think... The best possible tribute you can pay to it is to go back to what uh, uh, Bill Wyman and uh, um, Stu, Ian Stewart, would say about it, who are always the most critical of the Stones' discography. And so this is the only album that they can remember in recent memory where there wasn't a single bad song on it. And they played almost every single song on this album live because they're all good. And it was just – it was – a miracle frankly and maybe <laughs> maybe the last miracle before everything falls apart for the stones which comes to undercover uh 1983 the stones do a a big triumphant tour to tour tattoo you and um yeah a lot of good you know there, there's an official live release still life sucks terrible there's, Terrible, and there's some some good uh, recent archival releases that are better uh, from the same tour, but it's all still the same sort of Mick Jagger in a stadium barking at the top of his <laughs> lungs kind of thing. Wearing football pants. Yeah, 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 like like, hey, I'm pretending to be a Minnesota Twins fan today. Yay, boo! Yeah, it's weird. Doesn't work. And um, 
then you get to Undercover, 1983, and this is the moment where things change. This is the moment where a lot of people say, like, the Stones begin to suck. I don't think it happens here. I think it, it it's the real dip, the real bottom level. It comes on the next album. But Undercover is a weird record. I don't really know what you guys have to say about it. I think that the political themes, the lyrical themes that Mick works into these are actually good. I like Undercover. Of the Night. I really love the video where Keith, where Keith like yes. shoots Mick in the face. Yeah. <laughs> which he, I'm sure he'd been waiting to do for several years now. Um, but It's a Miami that, Vice styled thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's sort of South American, yeah. you know, yeah. Marco regime thing. Uh, the only real song that I hold on to from Undercover is "Too Much Blood," which is it's a is fascinating too, track. It, it's oh, it's just it's, it's it's too much long. I grant you that, but I like it. Yeah, I like it. Took it to his apartment, cut off a head, put the rest of her body in the refrigerator, and a piece by piece, put her in the refrigerator, put her in the freezer. got to tell you I, I i of the of the 80s output of undercover dirty work steel wheels i like undercover the best um now it's it's an odd album it's an unusual album to listen to it is very much kind of kind of aggressive and and raw and kind of violent and it's all over the lyrics just the the, the song titles too tough tie you up too much blood it must be hell all these things, and and part of it is again the Mick Keith relationship. They had uh, they were signing a deal with CBS for for the new albums, and uh, unbeknownst to the rest of the band, Mick had done this side deal, which in essence said, if the you know if the Stones aren't putting out albums, you have to promote my albums, the the Mick solo albums, as much as you would a, a Stones album. And nobody else in the band knew he did this agreement. Uh, sort of frayed some relations, which uh, which led to bad blood on undercover and, and dirty work, especially. But uh, you know the title track, which you guys mentioned, I, I think is is pretty good. Uh, the rubbery bass line, very processed drums. It's kind of taking a chance and, and succeeding. I think undercover works pretty well. <laughs>
uh, Tie You Up, Pain of Love, uh, Too Tough, good tracks. Uh, again, as Jeff mentioned, Too Much Blood is just this fascinating, listen, a very busy arrangement with these horn stabs, uh, these, these very graphic lyrics about a murder in France and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and burying body parts all over the countryside. It's all in Too Much Blood, it really is. Um, and then It Must Be Held, the album closer, very echoey of Soul Survivor. Same, it's the same kind of riff to close out Undercover. There are missteps here, there is no doubt about it. Uh, uh, there's a Ron Wood track that's 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 decent, but uh, of the three '80s albums, guys, I actually like Undercover the best. Well, you you're, you're damning it with faint praise. Then <laughs> um, I, I don't have a whole lot to add except to say I can't believe Charlie ever let them do that to his drum sound, even though it was the '80s. Um, and then I think it's it's interesting again, it, just for the Mick and Keith dynamic, uh, especially when they weren't getting along. He's writing these overproduced pop songs, and Keith is still churning out these open G-tuning rockers, and the songs alternate for most of the album. Um, at the time, yeah, I guess a rockabilly rave-up like Wanna Hold You was kind of out of fashion, <laughs> but now you look back at it, and posterity certainly favors Keith. Um, Too Tough, It Must Be Hell. Those songs have aged a lot better than mm-hmm. the songs that Mick brought to the table. Now, you talk about uh, why did Charlie let them do that to his drum sounds? Well, the reason uh, probably was because Charlie was getting addicted to heroin. And I got I to gotta ask you, listen, you are a member of the Rolling Stones. You are a founding member of the Rolling Stones. What kind of asshole do you have to be <clears throat> to get addicted to heroin after Keith Richards went through everything <laughs> that he did in the early 1970s? Oh, I thought you were going to ask what the hell took you this long. Well, I'm just like, my lord! Uh, this story, and you know, I, I joke about it, but it's sad. You know, his marriage is falling apart. He turned to drinking and alcohol, and then drug use. Charlie, always one of the most reliable members of this band. You know, along with Mick and Bill, they, they were the guys who like stayed sane and sober, except, except for Bill, occasionally going off to marry a 13 year old. Um, <laughs> you know, he. He's falling into um, you know non-functionality, and that is a huge part of uh, where that weirdness comes on undercover, and then particularly on dirty work. Yeah, dirty work, dirty work produced by one of oh, this pains me to say, one of my favorite producers of all time, Steve Lillywhite. Steve Lillywhite, who did XTC, who did Peter Gabriel, who did the, you know, the psychedelic furs, who did so many great great post-punk bands and then he finally gets his chance to produce the rolling stones and this is this is the lemon that he births <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible album we should spend 60 seconds on it i uh, robert Criscow gave it an a uh, but beyond that nobody has anything good to say about dirty work does anyone want to really defend a harlem shuffle or uh um i don't know uh winning ugly or i don't know maybe one hit to the body one hit to the body by the way, that's the irony of Dirty Work is that uh, Ron Wood, because everyone else was like, hating on one another, like Mick and Keith aren't talking, uh, and uh, Charlie is, is strung out, and so like, Ron Wood just brings a bunch of his songs, and he gets more writing credits on this record than he ever will again. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, they're all fairly decent songs, but they're produced abominably. So, you know, I, what is, I, give me your, your thumbnail summary of the least essential album of the Stones' career. Just keep it some peace And it's going to the bar 
So I think the 80s and 90s output to me is interesting. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the individual albums because I don't think they're worth it. Um, but the 80s and 90s output is interesting to me as a, as a stepping off point for, for two discussions. Number one. If Keith's Talk is Cheap album was released as a Stones record, would it be their best post-1981? I say yes. And number two, if the band had broken up in 81 or even earlier, would their legacy be that much greater, especially vis-a-vis the Beatles? Um, I, I think the Beatles somewhat benefited after calling it quits after, after, after only a decade and not uh, and avoiding some of those late career Nader albums that brought down the Stones batting average, uh, like Steel Wheels and like Dirty Work. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I'm that guy who unironically likes Steel Wheels, so I would disagree. So, Scott. Although they did, um, the other night in Philadelphia, only two days ago, they played Slipping Away from Steel yep. Wheels, which I think is the only high point on the album, but props to them that they're still playing a cut off of it. And they've been doing Sad, Sad, Sad on this tour, too. Yes, uh, that's right. From Steel Wheels. I should try Almost Hear Your Sire, Blinded by Love. I mean, actually, here's the thing. I... I Steel Wheels, they finally patched it up. They both went off and had their solo careers. Keith's went better, critically at yes. least, than Mick's. Uh, Mick's went disastrously, yeah, comically so. It's almost like the comeuppance that he deserved. Um, they finally patch it up, get back together, realize, as uh, Jeff said right at the beginning of the show, the brand is more important than anything else. Um, they put out Steel Wheels. Steel Wheels has sort of kind of become the watchword for the first corporate rock album uh, with a corporate rock you know, tour to support it. Um, everyone kind of liked it at the time and hailed it as the return of the Stones, and now everybody makes fun of it. I like that album. I think it's a good record. I, I, I really like some of the songs on it, particularly on the second half. He was I don't know about you guys. I, I think that the, the latter era of the Stones career, which involves Steel Wheels, Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon, and I guess a bigger bang, is far better than people give it credit for. Because at this point, we're always just supposed to think of them as like hmm. mercenaries. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the $200 tickets. They're in it for the corporate logos and you know sponsorships but the actual work itself is it in weird ways and in weird cameos it really does hold up better than you would expect yep and, and to jeff's second 
question. I think it was the second question. <laughs> Whether or not they, if they quit after tattoo you, if they'd be thought of differently. I don't, I don't really think so, actually. You know, by that point, you have the entire decade of the 70s, which by and large people would say is a mixed bag album to album. That's always going to weigh them down, so to speak, in the critical eye. And then again, outside of Dirty Work, which I think is uh, universally thought of as being a, a pretty big disaster, there are defenders of Steel Wheels, like Jeff, that, and, uh, and, 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 the, and the album's past then. I think people are just, you know, gracious that there's new Rolling Stone product, and, and it's hard to evaluate it uh, when you compare it to their to, to the height of their highs in their career. But as a, you know, a bunch of 50 and 60-year-olds playing rock and roll, and, and, and you know, one thing that, that's very clear toward this era is their ballads begin to overtake their rock song as being, as being the, the pillars of consistency. Uh, you know, you go to like, uh, well, you know, Mixed Emotions from Steel Wheels is actually one that I, I will definitely defend. I think Mixed Emotions is, is a classic Stone song, but make sure this, it's the single mix, not the album mix. I think the single mix really is much better. Keith's guitar is farther out front. It's a rougher mix. But, um, you know, like on Voodoo Lounge, You Got Me Rockin', which they're playing on this tour too. You Got Me Rockin's a, I mean, it's a it's a whatever song. It really is. But some of the ballads on uh, Steel Wheels, like, like Slip It Away, some of the ballads on Voodoo Lounge and even, uh, even Bridges to Babylon, those are some very consistently strong tracks. And um, I don't know if you want to slip forward to Voodoo Lounge a bit. I think Voodoo Lounge is the best post... Um, I was going to say post-undercover. I don't know if it's better than undercover. It's certainly close. Voodoo Lounge is a very strong set of songs, uh, released, uh, what, five years after Steel Wheels. Um, and, and this is a set of tracks that uh, I think is very well done. I think it's a time that Mick and Keith were getting along fairly well. But it's it's the CD era, so it's far too long. It's 15, yeah, if they could only yeah. have edited themselves. 15 tracks, 61 minutes. What I do, very very, very simply... Uh, I take out brand new car, sweethearts together, and suck on the jugular, which are consecutive songs. And bam! I, got, I like sweethearts, <laughs> but yeah, I, can't I got get myself a forty-five going. minute album. Um, but there's really good stuff. The worst is a great Keith song. I wish he would play that again on on, on the tour. You know, he has this sort of rotating group of, of Keith vocals that uh, they do two per per concert. I wish they would bring back the worst. Well, I said from the first, I, I, I'm the worst. fun track i like that one quite a bit there's a there's a a whole set of alternate takes floating out there um i think there's a few on youtube i have i have a whole disc full of of keith taking the lead on some of these songs uh baby break it down is an okay song with mick on vocals keith takes vocals on baby break it down if you can find it out there and it's a totally different feel to the baby break it down it's a really good song uh through and through another keith one uh right toward the the end of the album is a is a really good one uh voodoo lounge is a surprisingly strong set of songs uh not performance not not just performances i should say but songs from jagger and richards they they sound like they're actually 
friends again. <laughs> they're recording in a studio and they, they don't hate one another. They're not being forced by the lawyers to get together in a studio and patch things up. And that's that's the the miracle of the best stuff on Voodoo Lounge. You Got Me Rockin', I think, is another one. And uh, that really kind of brings that out. I also I like the weird kind of left turns. Moon is up, Out of Tears. I think those are really good songs. Blinded by Rainbows, that weird song that Mick Jagger decided to write about like the Irish troubles. Uh, why? I don't know, but it works. And you don't like Sweethearts Together, but I do. And I think it's it's a pretty good song. It's it's one of those weird kind of country left turns that I would have left on. It has that uh, that that actually that accordion that harkens all the way back to like Backstreet Girl from Be- Between the Buttons. And I think it works well. Um, this is a decent album. Uh, it's th- too far away from being a great album simply because it's overstuffed and they didn't edit it themselves. I just can't agree with you more about how the cd era in the mid 90s ruined bands you know this is the melancholy and the infinite sadness <laughs> syndrome where like oh yeah we you know so we have 80 minutes to play with let's throw everything we have on here no you prune it you use the other stuff for b-sides or you release an ep but if they had done that and they had edited it more be- more more i think more prudently you'd have had an album that was almost unimpeachable. Uh, ironically enough, uh, they would have to wait until their next one for that one. But before I get to that one, uh, Jeff, do you have any thoughts on Voodoo? Um, I am almost allergic to 80s production values, and this album benefits a lot by removing itself from that and going back to a little bit more organic production. This is Don Was at the board, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they also benefit from, as you mentioned, with the ballads. They bring back some of that English folk vibe that they had in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. Out of Tears, Blinded by Rainbows. And I'll, I will – people hate You Got Me Rocking. A lot of people hate it. I will defend that song to the day I die. It's a ridiculous lyric, to be sure. It's, it's trite. It's plug-and-play rock and roll. But it's a perfect illustration of the Stones' special sauce. In the hands of any lesser band – that the song would be a punchline, but it's not. <laughs> the rhythmic pocket is perfect. Ronnie's leads are perfect, and they just pull it off live every time they play it. They have so much fun with it that you 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 can't help but appreciate it. I it's, you know I don't understand why people dislike that song. I didn't even realize that people disliked that because song. the lyrics are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> How many Stone songs have? Listen, sure. I I'm it's just a monkey. Like All my friends are junkies. Oh, that's not really true. I'm a cold Italian pizza. I could use a lemon squeezer too. That's a pretty ridiculous <laughs> lyric. <laughs>
It's better than I Go Wild from the same album. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a little yeah. generic. We should, but, we should mention real, quick, real song, quickly, too. The first single is fine. It's a great yep. song. Love is Strong is good. And we should also mention, you know, since he's kind of a big part of the band, Bill Wyman's gone uh, by this point. Bill Wyman uh, ends up leaving the band, I think, 1990. It was after the Steel Wheels uh, tour. Essentially, 92. He, 92 is, is it. And they, they tried to convince him to come back. Yeah. They, they did everything they could because... You know, I mean, he's Bill Wyman, and he's he's a formative member. But he was just like, nah, I'm done. I'm done. Much older than they were. He's what five years older than the next oldest member. Something I don't, like that. You know, I don't a- even know if I, you you may be right, and I don't even know if that's correct. But I just I do sort of respect the fact that like you know what I, I've made my millions. I'm going to be able to just retire to the south of France, and I'm not going to go blow it all on lottery tickets. I'll be fine. <laughs> and this is where Daryl Jones comes in, a Chicago guy on on bass. Essentially, the guy said, Charlie, who do you want? And they tried out 30-some bassists, and, and Charlie said, this is the guy, Daryl Jones. Uh, slightly different feel, but he's been around so long, in another year or two, he can call uh, Bill Wyman a short-timer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been that long that Daryl Jones has now been in the Rolling Stones. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, this brings us to um, not the last album, the last new album of the Stones career, but for me at least, the one that I I think is sort of like the the last album that I really want to focus on, which is Bridges to Babylon. This one came out right when I was entering college and graduating high school. Um, This is an album that very few people actually have a lot of time for. This is a sort of dismissed as like, oh, one of these the Rolling Stones have to put out some products so they can go tour. I think this album, listen, I, I, I might even at the end of the day cite it as one of my top two albums to choose because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna eschew the obvious ones. You you already know Exile on Main Street. You already know some girls. If you want to find a late era Stones album that actually will impress the crap out of you and that really does include all of their virtues and, and travels a gamut and still stays current and doesn't get old or like you know blase or boring boy i'm so impressed by bridges to babylon and i'm a little perplexed at how it was sort of treated with this lukewarm critical reaction i love saint of me i love uh, you know thief in the night i love out of control Gunface. There's so many good songs on this record. Uh, the other thing I want to point out about this is that you can just hear the difference between Keith as a singer on these later period Stones albums. You hear it on stuff like You Don't Have to Mean It. Uh, Keith used to sound like that. We, as I said, he sounds like a guy who sings like he's falling off a cliff constantly. <laughs> um, and, but now he has a much more assured voice, and I guess that that's a product of his his, his you know, expensive winos solo touring era when he was doing talk is cheap and things like that. Um, cigarettes. You will get with cigarettes probably helped too or hurt, uh, whatever you want to call it. But uh, he sounds much more confident as a vocalist and much less like, you know, the guy who, who squawks his way through You've Got the Silver. I really like this album and I don't know why other people treat it as a footnote. I think this record is a is a triumph. Even if the, even if all you took away from it was flip the switch and anybody seen my baby, flip the switch to me is when I listen to it, I only hear Keith and Charlie, and I mean that in the best possible way. It's just Keith and Charlie holding down that rhythmic pocket as good as they've ever done, 
And then anybody see my baby is is all Mick. People remember it for the Angelina Jolie video, and that's fine. But it's a solid R and B song, and it's a good example of Mick being a little bit more modern and taking them into the '90s a little bit, but without embarrassing himself. No, not, not embarrassing himself at all. It it just it just works. It's it's an update of their sound in the best possible sense. I was flipping magazines in that place on Mercer Street when I thought I spotted her. purpose because Mick was not happy with the Voodoo Lounge production and Don was because Don was said let's do a classic Rolling Stones album that sound like you know rock and roll and Mick uh, still kind of writing what he was doing in the in the 80s was listening to new music and wanted to try it the, the, the Dust Brothers produced some tracks on Burgess to Babylon and essentially Mick said this album we're doing it my way and uh, and Keith said fine 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 but this is one of those albums where everybody worked alone Keith Ron and Mick all had their own studio, worked with their own producer, and then eventually was all brought together. So this is one of the more, uh, more I mean, almost hearkening back to Exile, right? One of the more piecemeal albums uh, because everyone wanted to do something slightly different. And maybe that's part of the, the allure of it. I had to go back and look. I, I, I remembered it being more warmly received than, than, than Jeff is sort of mentioning, and I, I, I can't confirm or d- deny that but i i remember people being pretty big about it anybody seen my baby did, did very well in the charts saying to me is a great great song um but there's a there's a good deal to like from from bitches to babylon i won't deny that i mean listen you've got to love it when mick jagger sings about how you know saint paul the persecutor was a cruel and sinful man or and then he talks augustine new temptation you know, and he pronounces it the British way. I always thought it was Augustine, but he says Augustine. New temptation. He loved women, wine, and song, and all the splash, special pleasures of doing something wrong. But he's like, yeah, you know what? These guys are all saints. You're never going to make a saint of me. That is a great song. That is a modern-day Stones classic. It proves they still had it.
thing about this, though, is that it, they, they, they fill in the nooks and the crannies in a way. It's not just about the big hits. Uh, there's this weird kind of keyboard-based thing called Might As Well Get Juiced that I really like. I really like Out of Control, which is it sounds like it's a Mick Jagger thing. I, I don't know if it is. I, I haven't done the research, but it sounds like it's all Mick. And then, then like it ends with three straight Keith songs, all of which are great. There's the Too Tight, and then there's a Thief in the Night, and there's the last one that's called How Can I Stop, which is almost sounds like a confession. It's yeah, Keith saying, I, how can I stop? I can't stop doing this. This is this is who I am. This is what I am compelled to be. I, 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 I still to this day, they put out a bigger bang, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but I feel like this is the last great Stones record. Agreed. I don't know if it's the last great Stones song, though, because I, I do want to mention off yeah. of Gurr, he created Pittsburgh. No, are you sure? Or is it 40 Licks? Uh, well, 40 Licks has a good song, um, but don't stop, right? But on right. Gurr is Doom and Gloom, which yeah, I think is good. an outstanding Rolling Stones song. That one makes me uh, eager uh, for new material, which of course may never happen, but uh, Doom and Gloom is essentially a uh, a mixed song. He wrote the riff, he wrote almost the whole thing, and then of course the guys come in and do overdub, etc. But uh, Doom and Gloom has this great beat to it, great rhythm to it. Charlie, of course, holds down the, the back end well, and there's space for everyone to work. There's Keith in the mix, you hear Ronnie uh, in the mix as well, and then uh, you know, pretty decent set of lyrics from, from Mick on, on Doom and Gloom. Um, that I don't recall that making a giant splash. I mean, it's new Stones material, so people are going to seek it out and hear it, but I really dig Doom and Gloom. That's a great song. They did it live on that tour, and it worked pretty well. it up i don't want to sleep on blue and lonesome um the blues records are usually where legacy classic rock artists go when they're out of ideas either that or an album where every song has a guest star <laughs> yeah uh, and peter frampton uh, no just, security where uh, dave yeah. matthews is singing on yeah. memory motel right yeah uh, peter frampton just did both of those things a blues album with guest stars <laughs> um and yet this material is just so far in their wheelhouse this nothing but Chicago blues that it feels way more vital than it otherwise should. I mean, these are just great, great takes on, on some of these. And these aren't mostly, these are not really well-known songs. This, these are um, Chicago deep cuts, basically uh, people I think are only maybe familiar with um, commit a crime um, I can't quit you, baby. Is probably I can't one quit that you, people, baby. Of course, because of the from, Zeppelin. From Led Zeppelin. Right, right. But yeah. a, so, a song like "Little Rain," uh, "Ride 'Em On Down," the the title track "Blue and Lonesome." These are 
really phenomenal takes with them all just mostly sitting in a room and and jamming together. I'm glad I'm glad that you mentioned that because yeah, it's not new original material, but it, it kind of it goes back to what they proved when they did those El Macambo sessions in Toronto on the Love You Live thing. Um, that you know, whenever the Stones decided to just go back and play the blues. These guys knew how to play the blues. They were raised in the blues. It's like Bane from the Batman. It's like you think you were, uh, you think you you have adopted the darkness. <laughs> I was born in it. The Stones were born in the blues. That's what they came up from. That was what they were born to evangelize. That was what they were born to do. So you hear them go back and you listen to this stuff. And it's like, yeah, they're seventy something years old. All of them. They're old men. But that, in fact for a peculiar reason that almost makes when you're singing the blues that much more effective because the blues is an old man and that was the irony of course the stones is like 20 somethings and you know teenagers playing these songs be so like hilarious when they were young could they really appreciate it well as they're 70 somethings man they kill it they absolutely kill it on blue and lonesome and that will bring us to the end of our Rolling Stones episode of Political Beats. And this is the time of the show when we all get together and uh, hand you out some awards, two albums that you must hear from the, from the past 50 years, and somehow five songs... <laughs> Good luck, buddy! ...that you should, uh, you should hear. Two, songs you, or two albums you should own, five songs you should hear from the past 50 years of the Rolling Stones. Uh, there are many choices <laughs> here. We turn it over to our guest first. He's editor-in-chief of National Journal at nationaljournal.com, on Twitter at DC DeFore, Jeff DeFore. Your two albums, your five songs, please. Well, the albums are going to be uh, chalk and nothing but chalk. Uh, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street, two of the great albums in the rock and roll canon, much less the Rolling Stones canon. So I apologize for my lack of creativity on that front. Uh, My top five songs... Can't you hear me knocking for the reasons that we've said? The um, the apotheosis of Keith's open G riffing followed by uh, the Stones as a jam band. I'm going to go with All Down the Line from Exile on Main Street because I think it's the best showcase for Mick Taylor's slide guitar, and I'm a sucker for slide guitar. I'm going to go with Angie off of Goat's Head Soup because it's my favorite Stones ballad. Uh, it's It's soulful it's emotional and the whole thing just works for me speaking of ballads i'm gonna go as i think scott may as well with time waits for no one um probably my favorite single late 70s stones track um and one of my favorite mick taylor solos again and then i'm gonna go with uh when the whip comes down which uh is a is a hard chugging song that probably encapsulates the New York period of the Stones as well as anything. Um, and if you'll give me a couple honorable mentions, I would go with Flip the Switch and, and Out of Tears from their, uh, shall we call it, their coda period of, uh, of the 90s and the aughts. All right. Uh, my two albums, uh, Exile on Main Street. It is, of course, as good as the uh, the hype. It truly, truly is. And uh, for the second album, I'll go a bit off the board, I guess. And yes, 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 uh, Black and Blue 
I mean, really, if you haven't heard Black and Blue, if you don't know what it's about, give it a try. Uh, that's uh, the two albums, Exile and Black and Blue. The songs, again, how do you pick five songs from 50 years? Do my best. Uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking from Sticky Fingers is on this list, as Jeff uh, went through. Uh, from Exile, the song I, I, I take from Exile is Torn and Frayed. Uh, Time Waits for No One, yes, another repeat from uh, It's Only Rock and Roll. What a, what a magnificent performance from Mick Taylor. From Black and Blue, Hand of Fate is here. And then, again, the best ballad not on Black and Blue and one of the best Stone songs of the past 50 years, bar none, Worried About You from Tattoo You. Man, do I love Worried About You. Uh, Jeff, to you. I just assume that anybody who has suffered through two episodes of a Rolling Stones deep dive podcast has already heard Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street and Some Girls. So I'm not going to recommend any of those two albums because for God's sakes, if you don't like those albums, if you haven't heard those albums, what are you doing here? I mean, did you just wander in here by accident? I mean, did, you, did you pick the wrong door or something like that? Okay. You know those. So let me pick two others that I think are almost as essential because you know the great hits. I'm going to go with Black and Blue, as Scott already mentioned. I think it's perhaps their most underrated album. Uh, they don't like it that much these days. Everybody thinks of it as a Stones, Doldrums era album. I don't think there's a weak track on it. Even the goofy, half-assed reggae cover uh, where Mick Jagger is completely failing to sound like anything Jamaican that he could ever hope to appropriate. <laughs> um, the second one that I will choose is Bridges to Babylon, which is a very late period Stones album. This sort of, I think, I don't know if at this point, you know, if maybe they're going to surprise me with something new next year. I doubt it, but I think this will be the last great album of original material that the Rolling Stones record. I think it's hugely underrated. I think at this point they were just treating a lot of critics and sort of maybe even the masses were treating the Stones as a, a live proposition and <clears throat> the new studio material is just stuff product to be consumed uh you know gerber baby food i think this is a much better album than that it deserves far more than that i think it's actually excellent i think if that they had released it after exile on main street instead of goat's head soup then people would be hailing it as one of their great achievements as for my five songs uh i'm going to again try to avoid the stuff that everyone else has said i'm going to start with two songs from exile on main street uh, the first one is going to be shine a light uh, it's a, a mixed tribute to brian jones um, who did not get along with him and uh, they had a really a difficult relationship uh, but the ultimate result is sort of maybe the greatest achievement of the Stones gospel folk soul roots era and uh, just a, a true piece of honest soul from a band that always tried to hold themselves at a greater remove. Second one would be Happy, also from Exile on Main Street. As I said, you know, you know, Keith Richards couldn't quite sing back then. 
but when he woke up from his junk sick dope <laughs> addled sleep and figured out that he had a riff and got the other guys to play horns and play drums he came up with something like this which is instantly iconic one of the most fantastic songs of the stones career third one i'll mention is an is one that we did not discuss when we talked about uh some girls which is another keith song it's before they make me run this was actually written with keith with uh, mick uh people don't realize that i think of it because keith sings the lead vocals on it they think it's just his it's actually a co-write uh but this is him writing about his uh, legal troubles you know gotta move while it's still fun gotta walk before they make me run and it's just a fantastic nagging lyric that comes back in the back and the back again on that chorus and it's uh it sort of to me represents the triumph of some girls which is a triumph of a band over its own worst instincts and its own sort of learned bad habits they had to relearn how to get along with one another again and how to collaborate again um uh fourth song is saint of me a song from bridges to babylon just as i already talked about very witty literate lyric very beautiful production great rocking group proving that these guys may have been 60 boy now they're 70 now i guess i guess in the 90s they were only in their mid 50s <laughs> um they were they were practically dewy young young men at that point uh, but i love saint of me and then the one i want to conclude with is um I already said on our last episode that you can't always get what you want is probably the greatest Rolling Stones song ever. Um, it, it probably is, but if there's anything that actually competes with it, it's Moonlight Mile. Um, when Moonlight Mile ends with that that beautiful Mick Taylor solo and those beautiful you know echoing guitar chords with the strings playing in the background as it finally resolves to the major triad. You, you feel wonder, which is something that the stones don't normally evoke in you when you listen to them. You feel genuine wonder. You feel like you are lost underneath the stars. You are lost in a vast, unknown and unknowable world. Uh, it's a beautiful moment and something that the stones never would really attempt to try to go back to uh, in their later years, which is a shame, but I'm almost grateful for it because I don't think they could have ever really improved upon that.
is the political beats look at the 57 year career of the rolling stones and still going strong today we thank our guests for the second part of the rolling stones episode here jeff defore editor-in-chief of national journal found at nationaljournal.com and at at dc defore d-u-f-o-u-r on twitter jeff thanks so much for joining us oh guys thanks very much it was my pleasure blast jeff another multi-part episode down summer is spectacular and it's the time is right for uh, uh podcasting in the streets <laughs> find jeff on twitter at esoteric cd my name is scott bertram find me on twitter at scott bertram subscribe to our feed please new episodes itunes apple Podcasts, google play stitcher tune in or you can go right to nationalreview.com and find old episodes there too. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. You can find the show on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.